Today's podcast is sponsored in part by the new ABC series, Who Do You Believe? I got a chance to view the first episode early, and it's a doozy. Love, betrayal, cheating, accusations of poisoning. The best thing about it, though, is that both of the people in the case get to tell their side of the story, and then the audience gets to decide who was in the right. The first episode premieres on Tuesday, May 3rd at 10, 9 central on ABC, and you can stream it on Hulu. I'm still trying to make up my mind, but I'd love to hear what you think after you all watch. everyone in Serial Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives of killers we love to learn about. Every week, Brian and I will discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us from this week in... Then we'll lead you down the darker path of learning about who a serial killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then Brian will slow things down for us, give us a walk through the creepier side of life with a discussion of the paranormal or cryptids. And this week in true crime, it's another cold case solved. Oh, yay. I love these. Yeah. A San Diego jury convicts a man for a murder that happened in 1969 this past week in City Heights. Uh, They were able to use DNA evidence and forensic genealogy. (laughs) That's just the way that they are finding these killers these days. Yeah, It it is the way. (laughs) Yep. uh, To find John Sipos uh, in a November 1969 rape and murder of a woman named Mary Scott. Hmm. The final deliberation was last Thursday. And uh, he is 76 year old, but you know what? 76 year olds can still get convicted of first degree murder. This is true. Who cares? Um, <laughs> day, too old. Yeah. At the time, uh, Mary was 23 years old. She was a go-to dancer. She had two kids and they found her uh, in her apartment uh, in Cal. It's in San Diego. Is it? San- yeah, it's in San Diego on 39th street near university Avenue. Um <sighs> He raped and strangled her, and he actually kicked in her door. Uh, He left behind loads of DNA evidence, which now, in, you know, the 2020s, we've been able to link back to him. So it's always nice when... People eventually get they get just caught. desserts yeah eventually they get it yeah his sentencing scheduled for uh, april 22nd and then he's expected to get a seven year to life term sentence but honestly seven years might be all he has left so mm. yeah yeah especially with uh the vid still going around um mm-hmm. uh, prisoners know. really got a lot of covid in the beginning so who knows but yeah, yeah. I hope that her family feels some solace. You know, she does have two children who are still alive. Uh, It was reopened in 2018 uh, once they used the same uh, forensic genealogy to find the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. Pretty much California was like, oh. (laughs) We own this. This is good. (laughs) 
let's do this. Yeah, let's keep doing much. this. Yeah. Nice. They they keep going through their old files. And honestly, you know, getting more closed cases. Um the guy Sipo was arrested in 2020. And uh Mary Scott's youngest daughter, Donna Weibel, just never expected that they would find the killer. Mm-hmm. And that it was she was completely in shock. Uh, unfortunately, her older sister died in 1993 in a car crash. So, the only Aww. one left alive is the youngest. No, there's mm-hmm. some uh, closure right there then for her though. Always good. good. Love that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you remember your old apartment and how you used to live on like the eighth floor? Mm-hmm. Okay, so. I'm not going to ask what would happen if you dove out of there. Um, well, but, right before I moved out, like a couple of months before, a man jumped from the top, like the the, the uh, open area. Yeah, he was a Vietnam vet. Uh, uh, it was sad. Oh, oh goodness. Okay. So uh, it happened in that building, which was 13 stories high. Okay. Well. In Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. um, there's a woman who jumped out of her eighth floor, or eighth floor of her apartment building, um, okay. and to get away from an attacker. <gasps> Did she live? She lived. Nice. Did she hit uh, things on the way down? I'm not sure. Because that seems how you slow the acceleration. Oh, yeah, but listen, there's some physics happening here. Y'all know I don't know science. Yeah, but once you get to like a, I, I assume that once you get to like a maximum speed, it, then if you hit something, that that would hurt. But then it would slow it down. Definitely, it would slow you down a little bit, it'll and then super just hurt. It, it'll, yeah, it'll pick right back up after that if you haven't gotten to the to the bottom floor yet. Actually, you know one thing I I heard um, it was wild because it was this kid who didn't like feel any pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and she got hit by a car and she virtually she only broke her arm nothing else bad happened and they said the reason why she didn't is because normally when um, like the natural human instinct when you're about to hit something is to tense up and we lock up and then when those locked limbs hit earth or a car or something they break mm-hmm. so essentially if you're falling from a far height just noodle just you know try just- and relax <laughs> Mr. Noodle Dance. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. This is reminding me of freaking Elmo. Uh, well, Street. you're the oh, one with God. two kids, so. <laughs> okay. So it's funny that you imagine, I mean, that you mentioned uh, like being um, tensed up and stuff because her hands and her feet were bound together. So, well, not <gasps> oh. together, but not that she was hog tight, but, you know, her feet were bound and then her hands were bound. This person had her like cuffed or like, you know. Right. Um, so, okay, so this happened on Thursday. So it says Metropolitan Metropolitan Police Department, uh, they, you know, they they received a call about a woman falling from an apartment on the eighth floor. And, you know, they said the the woman was bound and she was in critical condition. So she was already on the ground when they got this call. Yeah. Um, So the person who, I guess the... The attacker, his name was uh, Ky- Kylie uh, Jamal Palmer, and he's 22 okay. years old. Oof. Um, well, and throw your I- life away at 22, man. 
I know. And apparently they had a son together. So this was her ex who was trying uh, to harm her? Um, look. Oh. We've heard, like, this is all domestic stuff. It's, it's, I know. I, it, it's normally it's, the partner you know, not a stranger, but damn. Yeah. And it was probably some type of custody thing going on. I can only imagine what the hell was going on. Yeah, um, it's just in this sucks. It sucks that, like, the only, like, the people that are most likely to hurt you are the people that you trust. Yeah, absolutely. And it's virtually impossible to go through life and not, like, trust and open yourself up to people. And it just friggin' sucks. Yeah. Um. So this actually happened at 7 p.m. A lot of people were home to see this happen. Yeah. Um, Ooh, buddy. And, and, and I guess the police report, it says that... Uh, Mr. Palmer, he he left the area, the scene, and then, well, he, he fled the scene. Of if, uh, yeah, if you're smart. Yeah, before the cops arrived. But then he re- he returned to the scene when the cops were still there. Why? Um, he was, he, I don't know, this, the, the report says he was distraught. So. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> um, so police arrested him after interviewing him. Um, the woman's identity has not been released yet. Um, if it will be released, who knows? Um, yeah, let her heal in peace. Yeah. Um, police say that that they re- they recovered a rifle style ghost gun. I. He was gonna kill her. Hannah. <laughs> That's just all that was. He was going to kill her. I think. Uh... I don't know. What's a ghost gun? Hold on, let me Google this real quick. Because ghost gun, it sounds like it may not have been a real thing. Um, nah, it just sounds like a cool gun. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, you know what? The, it, yeah, never mind. It's an untraceable gun. So yeah, no, yeah, it's a it, real gun. He was yeah. about to ruin her. Yeah. Um, and some, and they said they found some type of reptile. Okay. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know I don't why, know that why made... it was important for us <laughs> yeah. to mention the family pet, but right. whatever. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning what kind of reptile it was. Now I don't even know now. It was yeah, a... was it a snake? Was it a was komodo? A Let me know. Was it an illegal it... alligator? Oh my god! What if it was a komodo dragon and then he was trying to he was going to kill her and try to beat the body? She was this freaking dragon. I can only imagine. This is it like... would take a very long time. They are slow eaters. This is true. Um. But their mouths are poisonous. True. <laughs> because they're, they're so toxic. Yeah, lots of creatures, like lots of lizards are like that. Why are we, we always get off topic. I know. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> so Mr. Palmer has been, he's um, he's been charged with assault with an intent to kill, obviously with the gun and possession, and possession with an unregistered firearm and uh-huh, possession of, of a, a large capacity of ammunition uh, feeding device. So I guess he had like an extra... Yeah, and this thing. is like a. Uh, I'm. They're using ghost, I think, for the reason because this is one of those guns that was probably used, sold back out onto the street. Um, all identifying markings and serial numbers are uh, scratched off, scratched off, or or you know melted off, and so it can't be traced. Right, um, yeah. The only thing they have are the striations of the bullets to link cases together. Yeah, and so yeah, he was def. I he was definitely uh, going to uh, 
kill her. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's good that she got away, and she's in. She is uh, as of this um, news report, she's in critical condition, but still, you know, still she made it still out fighting. alive. Yeah, they say how old their child was. Um, no, it just says infant son. So, oh no, he's baby, baby. This was the first year. Yeah, baby. Aww. But yeah, that's uh, that's rough. That's rough. Also. Yeah. Uh, to people listening, I know there's lots of ads in today's uh, episode because, you know, we got to eat. And uh <laughs> do want to remind everybody before I jump into our regularly scheduled po- uh, segment that you only have a couple days left to order an Asquatch t-shirt or the uh, cereal mugshot t-shirt. So just letting you know, keeping it very brief. There you go. One of the things that I told people that I would do this year is I would periodically discuss some of the bigger names. This year we've talked about Bundy, Alcala. It's it's shaping up to like once a month. So today I'm going to talk about a serial killer that is extremely polarizing in the true crime community. Um, Every single TikTok I've even mentioned her name in, the comments descend into whether she was justified, whether she was traumatized, or whether she was just a cold-blooded killer. That woman is Eileen Wernos. Uh, There has been many a conversation as to whether she deserved the death penalty, if her case was sensationalized, if it was used to help people get into better political positions in Florida. Uh, Eileen stands as a particularly interesting case because she is unlike any other women serial killer. Uh, In the vein of being transparent, I do want to say that I have my biases um, about this case, and I am generally sympathetic to her plate i will do my best to tell the story as it happened and not lean too hard in either direction and brian if you're wondering who eileen was a movie came out when we were in high school called monster okay i remember that movie with Charlize theron as eileen it was it was Charlize theron and christina ricci oh okay okay eileen i like Charlize did the work to look identical to Eileen. Christina did not look like the other woman, though. I vaguely remember the movie. I haven't seen it in a while. Okay. All right. right. So, like, every week we start at the beginning. Eileen Wernos was actually born Eileen Carol Pittman in Rochester, Michigan, on February 29th, 1956. Her parents were Diane and Leo Dale Pittman, and they were 14 and 16 years old when they got married on June 3rd, 1954. There were definitely questions about whether this was a shotgun wedding because Keith, Eileen's older brother, was born nine months after they got married. Oh. On top of it, there are definitely some discrepancies in the marriage certificate, and it's believed that Diane's parents may have faked her birth certificate so that she could get married. You know, having babies at a wedlock was not okay back then. Mm. And to be frank, history books remember Leo Dale Pittman as an abusive psychopath bordering on potentially pedophilic. Um, there were some discrepancies with his age. I saw multiple uh, dates of birth for him. So the age range was between 16 and 19. 
Exactly. So one seems more reasonable and one seems not reasonable at all. (laughs) That one's not good. The 19 is looking really bad on you, buddy. But regardless, uh, they tried to make it work because now they were married and Eileen was born about nine months after her brother. When I say that the history books aren't kind to Leo... Honestly, he was described as kind of a monster of a person. There are only a couple stories we know about this man, but that he was raised by his grandparents. And then when his grandfather died, his grandmother tried to like spoil him and like make him feel better because his grandfather was died. And he he responded by physically beating the crap out of his grandmother all the time. What? Hitting her when he wanted money. Uh, they also said he used to tie cat's tails together and then put them over a clothesline and watch them fight until one killed the other. Bruh, no. Yeah. Diane was absolutely terrified of her husband. And thankfully, the children weren't old enough to experience these things. The marriage didn't even make it two years before Diane filed for divorce. Leo was not there for Eileen's birth because he'd gotten himself arrested for raping a 17-year-old girl and kidnapping her and trying to take her to another state. He spent a time in prison in two different mental institutions, was diagnosed with schizophrenia before they finally sent him to a regular prison. There were rumors in town that one of the other young girls he was messing with went missing and he'd uh, tried to kill her to go avoid going to jail um in the end he ended up hanging himself in 1969 uh eileen didn't have any relationship with him wow now diane didn't want to be a mom and she didn't want to be a single mom of two kids at only 17 years old even more Mm -hmm. so finally in 1960 when eileen was four and keith was six she dropped them off at her parents house and This is the most bizarre thing, okay? Because Diane was, like, 18. So she was still a kid herself. Mm -hmm. And so she would, like, be around every once in a while. But Diane's parents, Lori and Britta Wernos, adopted their grandchildren as their own children. And then they moved to Troy, Michigan. I mean... But here's the thing. uh... Keith was old enough to remember that he had a mom. Oh, okay. He was that's, six. That's different. <laughs> Where's mommy at? Oh, right. God. Let me... Now, like, the grandma's like, I'm your mommy. Okay. I, I guess... guess they really had no intention of telling Eileen the truth, and they hoped that Keith would just forget. Hmm. I mean, you're six. Yeah, you, you, like, that memory is going to fade a little bit, but God, gosh darn it. <laughs> yeah. Lori worked at the Ford factory, and Britta was a stay-at-home mom who was already taking care of her other two kids, on top of, you know, Diane coming back and forth. She wasn't really excited about having two more kids to deal with, but they finalized the adoption on March 19th, 1960. Um, they lived in this old, like, yellow one-story ranch house in Troy off of Interstate 75. Uh, Eileen talks about remembering the city of Troy as a really nice place. It was kind of rural, a tight-knit community. Uh, Lori and Britta were very nice to their neighbors, but not very cordial. They never invited anyone into the house, Britta kept the windows and the curtains shut tight. And that was because they had a lot to hide. Um, Okay. Both Lori and Britta were serious alcoholics. Uh, Lori was a violent drunk who abused 
both of the children physically and sexually. Um, Eileen said that it didn't start sexually at first, but he beat her and demand that she strip before whipping her. Sometimes it was over his knee. Other times he would have whichever child was in trouble, like bend over a table, like spread eagle or like over a bed in a very sort of psychological torture way. He would have the children clean and like condition the leather belt that he used. Oh, wow. Eileen described it as almost ritualistic. They had to like, like oil and clean and massage the item that was meant to hurt them. That's that's like a, a kid going out to get the switch that's going to whoop their butt. Yes. And people totally used to do that. And it's super traumatizing. Yeah. Lori <laughs> uh, yes. was a very intimidating man and... Eileen wasn't exactly happy to be there, and from the beginning, she was pushing back against his parenting. Um, And the thing is, once you're already beating the ever-loving crap out of a child, it's very hard to rein them in. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Hit me some more? (laughs) What are you going to do? Beat me? Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so it became very common as Eileen is growing up for them to just fight. Um, and Lori would tell her that she was worthless. Um, Eileen said in her own bi- bi- autobiography and pretty much every interview that she was sexually assaulted by both her brother and her grandfather. Mm. Um, and honestly, it's generally believed that she was being pretty honest here because of a lot of the things we're going to learn about her mental health relationship with sex and intimacy. Um, and the thing is, Keith was also sexually assaulted. And so the outlet for this pain for the both of them was setting fires. Um, when the children were eight and six, they were setting lighter fuel on fire and Eileen got a serious burn that was a scar on her face pretty much for the rest of her life. Now at six, Eileen enters elementary school and I can't imagine the kids and the folks around town like didn't know. One of the children who lived near the Wernos house and rode the bus with Keith and Eileen said that she always had bruises on her arms, cheeks, and chin. They, she, this person this also said that like people in town knew that Keith and Eileen were sexual with each other because um, they remembered that the older boys used to tease Keith about having sex with his sister. Oh, my God. So you already have that going into your school. A rumor mill but it was like nobody really liked Eileen and mm. so she would watch like the other little kids like hold hands and like little tiny pecks um, and on the flip side she was getting favor from the older boys um, trading sexual favors for cigarettes mm. at 11 years old um her classmates called her the cigarette pig and the oh cigarette God. bandit. Eleven, twelve was also when Eileen learned that her parents were not her parents and they were her grandparents. And at this point, she's already a pretty violent kid. She's a terrible temper. She's constantly fighting with Lori. And this only set things off further. The fights got so bad that Christmas of 1968, Eileen said that Lori picked her up and threw her out in the snow. And she tried to live in the woods, but she came back two days later. He threw her out again. And this time she slept in like abandoned cars. Um, She ended up 
hanging out with her friend Dawn Botkins and Dawn and Eileen actually hitchhiked to California and this they this solidified their best friendship. Uh, they actually would stay close until Eileen was executed. This is also the time that she starts drinking and doing drugs. Um, they ended up hitchhiking back to Troy and her grandfather did let her stay there, but they would also take trips to Hawthorne Park in Detroit and they would buy drugs on Seven Mile Road. Um, by 12 years old, Eileen was already a full-blown alcoholic. And she would just, like, go out to, like, parties with older kids and she would wake up with dried semen on her clothes. Uh. Or there were situations where people would just, like, rape her at the party like people were watching it's terrible i told before we started today's episode i I I told brian this wasn't going to be a good ride this is probably one of the worst childhoods i've come across it's terrible at school eileen wasn't doing too well her only real interest was art and she was considered to be like a really good artist but she had trouble concentrating in school um when she was 14, she set fire to a roll of toilet paper in the girl's bathroom. And one of her teachers sent home a letter that was just like, it, quote for quote, it is vital for this girl's welfare that she seeks counseling immediately. Mm. Yes. I mean, yeah. That letter was ignored. Um, in ninth grade, Eileen was in class and accidentally set off a chemical explosion with one of her classmates. She suffered more burns to her face and arms and actually was hospitalized. Uh, for a few days and not allowed out of bed for months. I'm sure she was miserable being in the house all day mm-hmm. with these people. Just stuck there, yeah. Now, 1970 was a particularly poignant year for Eileen. She made friends with this local guy people called Chief. He was an older man who was dying from cancer, and he used to let Eileen play records at his house. And uh, he got his jollies from... Asking Eileen to like sit on his lap and he would give her money. Hmm. Uh, 1970 is also the year she got pregnant, though. Nobody knew if the child was Lori's or Keith's or any of the other people who sexually assaulted her at the time. Uh, Britta was not having another child pregnancy on her watch. And so she sent Eileen to a home for unmarried mothers. Those places you're just kind of supposed to live and wait until you give birth to the baby but Eileen was angry. And when the other pregnant girls tried to talk to her, she was like nasty to them. The Honestly, the home couldn't wait until she gave birth on March 23rd, oh, 1971. No. Oh no. It was a baby boy who was immediately put up for adoption and was, they never heard from him again. Oh my goodness. Okay. Now when Eileen comes back, Lori has some news for her. He's like, I want you and Keith out forever and he threatens to kill them if they don't leave what the hell Britta somehow softens her husband and gets in the middle of this fight and she's just like come on they're only 15 and 17 years old give it some time Uh, coincidentally uh, July 7th 1971 Britta Warnos died uh oh just a couple months later I'm going to say it seems really coincidental that someone protecting them four months later after she defied Lori, she dies. Um, Apparently though, she did have uh, cancer, but um, 
It's Still, just, it's just a maybe he helped it along is all I'm saying. No, it was liver failure. Sorry. I was thinking it was lung cancer from the smoking liver failure from the alcohol. Oh, Wrong. come on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You could have kept beating her. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, strangely though, uh, Lori falls apart. He pretty much has a nervous breakdown. He tries to kill himself by flooding the basement with water. And then he stands in the water with the power on. You could have easily done that. I mean, I'm not. I'm not there giving are you so a... much less complicated ways to <laughs> right. end yourself. Like, I'm not trying to give you the recipe or anything like that. But right, like, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to let people how to know how to do it. But I'm just saying there are much less complicated ways. Yes. Um. Ultimately, he ends up moving the kids to a new home. Uh, I guess you know to leave behind the memories of his wife. Uh, you know, but uh, he continued to decline. And actually, a couple years later, he did succeed in killing himself by sitting in the garage with the car running mm. and giving himself carbon monoxide poisoning. Um, Eileen was the one to find him. And uh, true to how much she didn't like this man, she showed up at his funeral, blew cigarettes, smoke in his face, and then left. Nice. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Eileen's mother, Diane, believed for many years that Lori killed Britta. But like I said, the official record says liver failure. That could be one of the causes. <laughs> um, years later, Eileen's uncle, one of the other children, Barry, would testify at her trial that he had never seen Lori beat Eileen and that they all had a normal upbringing. She was provided with food and shelter, but that Eileen was very angry. And I was just like, one, Barry, being a good parent is more than just giving your kids food and shelter. And we need to move away from that as a country. Uh, Kids need compassion and kindness and they need to be taught, not just, you know, expected to learn everything themselves. You leave kids to learn stuff on their own. You get bad results. But we're Mm going to see some of those bad results to how Eileen was treated. I think that more than likely... Barry wanted to paint his family in a better light. Um, She and Barry disputed this testimony until the end. Uh, Barry did say that Eileen was a good student, had wonderful artistic abilities. Um, I'm also going to say that Barry was an older child and he wasn't exactly there for most of the time that Eileen lived with Lori. So Mm -hmm. how are you commenting (laughs) on what you weren't there to see? very true he could have been a good parent to you there's plenty of situations where step parents will sexually assault the kid that's not related to them so technically this child was related to him in a two generation kind of skip still gross absolutely now when (sighs) diane learned that her father died she offered keith and eileen a place to stay in texas but both of them were like Ew, no. (laughs) Eileen quit school, left home, started hitchhiking and prostituting just to get away from Troy. Um, Despite the scars on her face, she was still a very pretty, fit 15-year-old, and a certain kind of clientele are always looking for somebody who is exactly that age and to that specification, and I won't get into it further. Okay. Despite the fact that she had her hustle figured out, Eileen was still deeply depressed and she just kind of bounced from city to city. 
She pops up on the legal record at 18 years old. Um, she gets arrested in Jefferson, Colorado, May 27th, 1974, driving under the influence, uh, also underage drinking. She also got a charge for disorderly conduct for firing a 22 caliber pistol out of the car while she was drunk driving. So she was just joyriding and shooting in the air. She was hooting it up. Okay. Eileen ignored this, moved to another state. And when her court case came, she wasn't there. So they added on failure to appear to a now very massive list of crimes in only one day. Um, The police were never able to track her because she gave them her working name at the time, which was Sandra Kresh. I love it. Okay. Now, Eileen decides she's going to hitchhike down to Florida. Florida seems nice. And once she's down there, she meets 69-year-old multimillionaire Louis Gratz Fell. Uh, He picked her up, and honestly, Louis was immediately enamored with her. And Eileen was like, this is weird, but he has a lot of money. Louis Gratz was the yacht club president of his area, which I didn't realize, but that means you have money, money, if you're (laughs) the president of the yacht club. I don't even know anything about that because we don't live anywhere near where yachts can hang out. This is true. This is true. But I I figure if you're like the president of a yacht club, yeah, you got to have the money. That's that's money, money, real money. Uh, Problem here was that Eileen was a poor girl with a horrible upbringing who didn't trust anyone. And she was definitely used to men only hurting her or using her. She didn't see that Lewis was trying to be like a white knight. And he thought he found like a pretty girl who was kind of nice. And he's like, if I just offer her everything, she'll settle down, be the Stepford wife that I want, you know, coast me into my twilight years. Mm-hmm. He offers to marry Eileen and she's like, okay, sure. Some reports have said that she loved him, but at this point in her life, I don't think Eileen was capable of really loving a man or anybody. I think she appreciated not being poor. Uh, their wedding was March 1976 she was 20 years old Uh, they took photos that appeared in the local newspaper this was like high society news and I'm gonna tell you their marriage lasted only nine weeks oh damn 20 year old Eileen was wild angry she had a horrible temper Uh, just a few weeks after being murdered she got arrested and put in jail for assaulting somebody at a bar when she got back out um, her husband was like, I need you to like stop drinking and, and doing drugs. And she hit him with his own cane to try and force him to give her money. That's, that's a good way to get money, I guess. Well, so Lewis was done. He filed for an annulment, put her out of his house. Eileen was like, eh, might as well go back to Michigan. And she gets arrested in Antrim County for assault and disturbing the peace. Oh my God. Yeah, she was at a bar and threw a cue ball at the bartender's head. No. <laughs> Somehow, she avoids jail time there. And on July 17th of the same year, she learns that Keith died from esophageal cancer. And then a couple days after that, her husband gets granted that annulment because of the abuse. Eileen mm. is now husbandless. She does get $10,000 from her brother's life insurance policy, which she ran through. Um, part of it was because she had to pay all, uh, court fees and attorneys and things, but the rest she spent on a new car, which she immediately wrecked one month later in August while drunk driving. And she accrued a $105 fine. For drunk driving, that's it? 
I mean, it was 1976. Okay. okay. Got to remember that. <laughs> Not today's uh, money. Uh, today, it's like a $4,000 fine and you might lose your license. Definitely. Now, there was a rumor that Fred was murdered, but that was just the media. He lived a long life until the age of 92, passed on January 6, 2000. No funny business, natural causes. He never spoke of Eileen ever again. Hmm. He's like, this is the last time I help a random pretty girl out. <laughs> Um, Eileen, Eileen manages to stay off the criminal record for the next two years. This time she pops up in a newspaper article in 1978 because she tried to kill herself by shooting herself in the stomach. <sighs> Eileen said in her autobiography that this was the sixth time she tried to kill herself since she was 14 years old. She falls off the radar again until May 20th, 1981. At 23 years old, she's living in Edgewater, Florida now. Uh, she gets arrested for armed robbery for stealing $35 and two packs of cigarettes. She was held and then sentenced to prison on May 4th, 1982, released on June 30th, 1983. The force was not with her that uh, day. Uh, less than a year later, May 1st, 1984, she gets arrested in Key West, trying to cash forged checks at a bank. November 30th, 1985, she's named in the local papers in Pasco County, Florida, as a suspect in the theft of a revolver and also ammunition. Hmm. A couple months after that, January 4th, 1986, she gets arrested again, this time in Miami for car theft, resisting arrest and obstruction of justice. She was carrying an ID with her aunt's name on it, and she was carrying a 38 caliber revolver and a box of ammo in her car. Damn, she just can't stay Away. <laughs> Somehow she skips bail, disappears again. They find her again in Volusia County, Florida, June 2nd, 1986. This time because she was hanging out with a guy and she pulled a gun on him and demanded $200. That's what he said. When they detained her, they discovered ammunition in her car and a 22 caliber pistol under the passenger seat that she'd been sitting in. Mm, so it's probably true <laughs> and, yeah she was trying to rob him it was after that that Eileen had her first and probably only relationship um, she met Tyria Moore at a gay bar called Zodiac in Daytona, Florida uh, Tyria was 24 years old from Cadiz, Ohio and a hotel maid Ty as Eileen called her had left Cadiz immediately because it was a really small town of only 3,000 people and you can't really be a lesbian when the town's that small. Mm. Um, she left behind her father who was a carpenter and a brick mason and a sister Sorry. and three brothers. Now, from the moment that Ty and Eileen met, it was an instant connection, but it was also toxic and it would stay that way for the next four years. They moved in together fairly quickly uh, for Eileen, she was just desperate for affection. This was anything that she ever wanted. Someone who genuinely loved her. And so Eileen saw no issue with supporting both of them through her work as a prostitute. Uh, and Ty did stay with Eileen through a lot of stuff. They could barely afford to survive. They were constantly moving from hotel to hotel, sleeping in the woods or in old barns when they couldn't afford it. Uh, in the meantime, 1986 turns to 1987. Eileen's now 33 years old, and she's finding that her ability to make money as a professional is kind of changing. She isn't the perky, funny 20-year-old anymore. And unfortunately, a lot of men who engage with prostitutes like women a lot younger than they are. 
the frequent loud outbursts never stopped but ty loved her anyway (laughs) eileen called ty her wife uh In 1987, Ty manages to scrounge up enough money to buy an old trailer, and they live in this crappy trailer park, and all I can say is they kept the other residents entertained. There were always a string of uh, scraggly-looking men showing up and coming in and out of the trailer. The land they were on was full of just stuff. And then sometimes the women would be seen outside in just their underwear. And so people thought they were pretty wild. But finally, one night, um, neighbors said there was like loud music and they heard gunshots. And the next day they were like, can you leave? Oh, (laughs) can you you just move away, please? We don't want you here anymore. You guys are just rowdy, now, too rowdy for as us. As for their sex life, it's complicated. Ty would say later on court that they were more like sisters than lovers. The main struggle was that Ty felt that Eileen liked her work a bit too much. And Eileen would later say that her love for Ty was greater than, it was a greater love and was not entirely sexual. For Eileen, she was getting the love and connection she'd never gotten from her parents or anybody else in her life. Now, July 4th, 1987, both Ty and Eileen get detained for questioning after someone in a bar is hit with a beer bottle. I wonder who did that. On March 12th, 1988, Eileen calls the cops on a bus driver for throwing her off a bus. She said that he assaulted her and Ty. The bus driver was like, Ty and Eileen were arguing and it was really bad. And he told them to get off the bus to protect the safety of the passengers. And they didn't. Despite the constant outbursts and fighting, there was real love there. At her trial, Eileen said, it was love beyond imaginable. Earthly words cannot describe how I felt about Tyria. Now, there's massive speculation about how much Ty knew about these murders. And that lies in the fact that she was still dating. She was dating Ty the entire time Eileen was killing people. The first murder, and she didn't leave. Until Thanksgiving of 1990, which was right after she'd killed the last man. I mean, that can that's that goes for like a lot of women and like the men that are serial killers. You know what I mean? Like the women don't know that their husbands are these fucking murderers and shit. Like, how would she know just because they're dating? Oh, wow. Yes. My, like, we tell, we tell each other well, everything. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some information. Uh, and maybe you'll change your mind on that a little later. Um, ultimately, okay. the two would exchange uh, phone calls that would lead to Eileen's arrest. And they wouldn't see each other after that until uh, the courtroom when Ty testified against Eileen. But we will discuss that part of the story later. We're going to talk about the murders that happened between December 1989 and September 1990. Now, Eileen maintains that she always killed these men out of self-defense. In her own words, hookers are like cab drivers. You get good fares and bad fares. That judge said I killed him for money. I've been with hundreds of men who had money. I only killed seven. So what does that tell you? Seven of them had (laughs) money. She says that seven of them got rough with her and that's why she killed them, but... 
Eileen met Richard, Richard Mallory when she was hitchhiking on December 1st, 1989. It was about 3 a.m. They pulled off to the side of the road uh, away from Daytona to get busy. As Eileen tells it, they smoked, drank. She got naked. She said that Richard did not. She said that he couldn't get hard, so he got angry and hit her. She said she tried to give him a blowjob to help him along, but that didn't help. Um, she said that he held her down and slapped her, and she grabbed her gun and shot him. That story changed later to say that he had tied her up and raped her with a blunt object. Um, that's the version of the story that they use in the film monster. But regardless, Eileen believed that this man was a threat and she killed him. So the thing here is that Eileen's testimony, like she would go on to say that the police knew that Richard Mallory was a predator. And he was. The 51-year-old owner of Clearwater Electronics apparently uh, was known to close his shop and just disappear on sex and alcohol-fueled vendors. He only hired enough staff to clear up the backlog of orders from when he left, and then he'd fire them all. The police caught him multiple times with drugs and prostitutes. And in Eileen's case, the jury wasn't allowed to know that he had done 10 years in the Maryland State Mental Institution for an attempted rape. He's divorced five times, had recently ended things with his girlfriend, Jackie Davis, before he met Eileen. He was also on the edge of bankruptcy because he was spending so much money on this seedy side of his life. For me, I always saw this moment as like two very angry alcoholic people met each other at a moment where they were both struggling financially and using sex as an outlet. Mm. Yeah, and then once, yeah, then once one couldn't. Well, do like I said, it, we don't know if that was yeah, true or not, but like it, yeah. they were both like, right, yeah, kind of terrible people. And so we don't true, know who true, threw true. the first punch or who started it first, but we know how it ended. Yes, uh, did. On Monday, December 3rd, 1989, Richard didn't show up for work. His staff and clients were pretty used to this, so nobody called it in. He didn't have any close friends or family to worry about him. In fact, it wasn't until the cops found his Cadillac abandoned near Ormond Beach that they got suspicious. Um, the police wouldn't have looked into it further if they hadn't noticed there was some blood behind the steering wheel that hadn't been cleaned off. They found his wallet a short distance from the car, random papers, expired credit cards, an ID. They found uh, some plastic glasses, a half-filled bottle of Smirnoff vodka, an empty Budweiser. Uh, the police definitely believed that Mallory hadn't been alone and someone was driving his car who was pretty short because the seat had been pulled up all the way. They they dusted for prints. They oh, towed it to where it was analyzed. And uh, that was really it with the car until December 13th when uh, Jimmy Bonchi and James Davis were out looking for scrap near Interstate 95 and they found Richard. It's about five oh. miles away from where his car was dumped. Uh, his body was under a cardboard box and only his fingers were peeking out. His dentures were laying next to the body. Um, they ended up taking his hands to the crime lab to get prints because when there's massive decomposition, they do have to do extra things to get a workable print. Uh, it was assumed decomp was too much for a mm -hmm. proper autopsy, so they took him to a funeral home, and Dr. Arthur Bodding uh, came by and uh, certified his death. The police really focused on Richard's outrageous lifestyle, and they ran down as many leads as they could. 
does he owe people money? Is he a bad, was there a bad drug deal? Nothing really came from it. Um, he had recently seen a stripper who went by the name of Chastity and Chastity had told all the clubs at her, all the girls at her club that Richard was a pervert and to not like deal with him. So they wondered like, maybe he attacked her and she fought back, but she had an alibi. Uh, the case went cold by May of 1990. It was already forgotten. Um, his sister in Texas and brother in New Jersey assumed it was just Richard being Richard and they didn't really want to deal with him or his death. Um, his electronics shop was taken over by a man named Mr. Townley and the name was changed to Johnny's TV and VCR of Palm Harbor. Uh, yeah. Okay. Richard, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, Richard's ex, Jackie actually had him cremated and she sprinkled his ashes. Ty would tell the police okay. that Eileen came home with a Cadillac that she knew was stolen, but she didn't know the man was dead. But then later Eileen told her the man was dead. They used the car to move their stuff to a new apartment and then Eileen got rid of it. Like both Eileen and Ty mentioned in their <laughs> testimony that like Eileen was just like, I killed a man. And Ty was just like, don't talk about that. <laughs> don't 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 say things like that. <laughs> no, no, she, no, she was like, I don't know if I believed her, but I told her to shut up. Like, <laughs> listen, oh Ty God. was giving homegirl good advice, oh plausible God. deniability. Um, I think shut up. Don't tell me about that. Yeah, okay. The thing you always say, don't tell me. About exactly that. what I said, and it's for this reason. Uh, Ty would stick by her story, um, but. Eileen gave her a jacket that had the name Richard in it and a scarf that belonged to him. Then she pawned as much of his crap as she could. <laughs> Don't be giving me oh uh, gifts from your kills. Oh, I don't want your lot. souvenirs. Uh, they made enough money off of Richard, though, to last a couple months. And then there was David Spears. Uh, now, Spears was not like Richard. He was considered to be a nice, normal, hardworking guy. He was 43 years old and recently divorced. He lived in Winter Garden near Orlando and worked in construction. He was a big guy, like 6'4", but described as a gentle giant. Um, like, I said he was divorced, but he was so nice to his ex-wife. Like, he just gave her money. It wasn't mandated by the court. He, um, The wife was taking care of their 17-year-old daughter, and he was just like, I just want her to be happy and you to be happy like good guy um in fact Aww, just before he yeah, met eileen okay. he spoke to his ex-wife d on may 18th 1990 and told her that they were going to meet the following day between 2 and 2 30 may 19th oh, mm. well this may 19th was saturday <laughs> and so he ended up running a little late and he was heading down i-75 to tampa and we just know that somewhere between us 27 and i-4 about 26 miles from home that's where he picked up Eileen. Now, Eileen would later tell the police that they pulled off the road, you know, to, uh, <laughs> yeah, to do some things. Um, oh, gosh. It was uh, near Hum, Hum, mm, Home Assassin Springs. So many S's in this name. Uh, <laughs> and she said that it was so far into the woods that David was worried the truck would get stuck. Um, they did find his truck abandoned 10 miles west of Orange Springs in Marion County on Sunday. They found blonde hair on the steering wheel and a ripped Trojan condom wrapper on the floor. Everything that he had in his car was missing. His work tools, 
clothes, ceramic statue of a panther that he was going to be giving to Dee. Um, and just like with Richard, the driver's seat was pulled up way too close to the steering wheel, which let the police know the last person who drove the car wasn't its owner. His remains were found on June 1st. A man by the name of Matthew Cocking was out walking in the woods and found David's remains. It was pretty badly decomposed. Nude except for a base, like a camouflage baseball cap. And the used Trojan was on the ground near his body, alone with the empty cans of Bush and Budweiser. Um, it's not so much that the remains were sitting there for so long. I mean, they were there for a while, but also it's hot. And like sticky down in Florida, so that it only makes it worse. Um, the remains right, were so yeah. badly decomposed; it took them time to figure out the age, sex, and cause of death. Yeah, oh God, his autopsy really? was Damn. done on June fourth. How do I explain this? He was a big guy, like two hundred pounds, and there was very little flesh left in the remains. The doctor got mm. like. 40 pounds of bone and a very little skin. Um, her name was Dr. Janet Pillow, and she was able to find six 22 caliber pistols and, sorry, 22 caliber pistol bullets, and she was able to get a good cast of his teeth. With his dental records, they were able to talk to his friends and family. Um, they learned from Dee, his ex-wife, that they were meeting because his daughter was graduating from high school and he was giving her money for graduation. Dee was able to tell the police that he told her that he was giving her a couple hundred dollars to help with the supplies and that he also kept about $600 in his truck for emergencies. With all of the tools and things that were pawned, Eileen took in well over $1,000 killing David Spears. But then just before they had a chance to really dig into David's case, they find another body five days later. This is Charles Chuck Carscadden. It's mid-May. Uh, he's 41 years old, and Chuck was on the way from his mother's house okay, uh, in, bon in Boonville, Missouri. Or is it Bonville, Missouri? I forgot to look that one up. I always look up the names. Regardless, he was coming from Missouri and he was going to Tampa to pick up his fiance, Peggy. He was a former road digger and rodeo rider and at the time of his death, a printing press operator back in Missouri. And he was hoping to start a life with a little less hard labor and a new bride. Um, interestingly enough, Eileen referred to Chuck both in her book and to the police as the drug dealer. But there's no record that he was a drug dealer. Um, Eileen's huh, yeah. Eileen said that they stopped for sex and he only had $20 and he wasn't going to give her any more money. Um, she said that when they were both in the back seat, he called her a fucking bitch and she shot him seven times. <coughs> then she reloaded, got out of the car and shot him two, two, two more times. She said that he had a 45 and she thought that he was going to hurt her. So she killed him first. Oh God. Now, you can tell he wasn't a drug dealer because he only had $20 on exactly, him. Right? <laughs> he had enough money for gas to get to Peggy, and that was it. <laughs> that was it. Over the course of Eileen's court case, she would change these stories multiple times. First saying it was self-defense, and it was about money, then it was back to self-defense. Like, <sighs> Ultimately, they find Chuck's body on Wednesday, June 6th, covered in leaves and tree branches and a green electric banquet. His autopsy showed he'd been shot nine times with a twenty-two caliber pistol. 
1975 brown Cadillac was found 45 miles north of where the body was dumped the following day. The plates had been mm-hmm. trashed, uh, but they were able to trace the owner to the VIN number. Uh, Chuck's mom told the police that he did carry a 45 caliber pistol with a pearl handle. He also had in his car with him a Mexican blanket, a stun gun, a flip top lighter, a watch and a tan suitcase. And that he was also wearing his gray snakeskin boots when he left her house. She also told the police that he had removed the firing pin from the gun because his only intention was to use it to scare people. Hmm. None of those things were found in his car. The spoils of murder. Of course. Of course. Now, Eileen's on a roll now. Her next victim is Peter Slimes, a devout Christian. Peter was 65 years old and he retired from a life of being a merchant seaman. He was living in Jupiter, Florida, in Martin County. And the same day that Chuck Scarcatton's car was found, Peter was seen filling his car with Bibles and luggage. He was taking his 1988 silver Pontiac Sunberg out to be a witness to the heathens. His intention was to drive to see his relatives in Arkansas and New Jersey. And in the middle, if he met a couple of sinners and could convert them, then he considered that to be a good trip. Uh, He promised his wife he'd call her once he stopped for the night. And he never made it to the first motel. Oh, wow. His wife alerted the police the following morning. Eileen would later tell the police that he'd become threatening during sex. So she shot him. Uh, Peter is the only body that was never found. But she said they met somewhere in Georgia. His car was found because someone else was driving it. Imagine that. Was the seat pulled all the way up as well? So I'm going to give you this. So it's Orange Springs, Florida. Nice area. There's this couple, Rhonda and Jim Bailey, sitting outside, sipping some lemonade. It's 4th of July. This car enters the block, takes a hard turn, skids sideways, smashes through a steel gate and a barbed wire fence. The windshield shatter. It comes to a stop so quickly that it almost rolls over. The couple sees two women get out of the car, and they were able to tell the police that the blonde woman was bleeding. Come on. They also tell her the blonde woman throws her beer cans into the woods while yelling at the second woman in the car. Then they grabbed a cooler from the backseat and ran into the woods. A neighbor like ran out and offered to help them. But Eileen like was like, no, please don't. Um, Don't call the police. My father lives down the road. It's his car. They drove off very quickly. Um, But. Ultimately, they only drove to get rid of the car that had two tires that were flat and the radiator was smoking. They took off the plates, threw them in the woods along with the keys. The neighbors did not listen to Eileen and absolutely (laughs) called the police because this lady is bleeding. Now, the police are driving down the road and they don't see the car. It's just her and Ty walking and the police are like, you sound like the woman who got in a car accident. Yeah, what and happened? she's like, okay? "Leave me alone! I just want to go home." And so the police are like, "All right, whatever." <laughs> but they decide they're going to keep looking for the car because it was a crashed car. Where did it go? So right, it, it destroyed property too, right? Definitely somebody's property when she smashed through their fence. Yeah. 
it sounds like a business though generally businesses have like the barbed wire and the steel gates um regardless though later that night the police a police officer finds the car it's found in like the underbrush under like leaves and things there is blood all over this car including bloody fingerprints it's very quickly connected connected to peter symes missing and just like all the other cars all peter's stuff gone just trash and beer cans left in they were able to find a leftover receipt from a local gas station um Mm -hmm. and that showed the two of those women in that car at that gas station. Oh my god. So the police put out a bolo to find two women seen in this missing man's car. They also sent out a description of them along with their sketches because they've now made all manner of witnesses. You're right, yes. To the Florida <laughs> Criminal Activity Bulletin and an officer, John was Wisniewski, uh, who'd been working the case since the beginning. Honestly, he wasn't really hopeful. Um, usually when people kill people like this like they would steal the identity or use the credit cards or break into the person's bank account but these women hadn't done any of that and he had no idea why like they left his personal effects and i'm guessing only took the cash now despite having a absolute boatload of bloody fingerprints and remember eileen has been arrested in like six different towns in florida (laughs) they do not check these fingerprints for anything why not why not why not (laughs) because that always happens in all these cases brian oh my god (laughs) so of course she kills again uh eugene troy barres 50 years old on the day he met eileen he lived in ocala just 15 minutes from orange springs with his wife rose um ocala is a resort town and a really nice spot for retirees Troy still worked a little bit as a sausage salesman for the Gilchrist Sausage Company, but he had retired from his former job, which was a lot more demanding than selling sausages. Uh, He had run Troy's pools in Boca Raton until 1989 when it went under, and he decided that he was done with the pool cleaning business. It was too hard, couldn't keep up with the demand. So on July 30th, 1990, Joy is just heading out for a normal day at work. He's going to hit a couple of stops, sell some sausages to some clients they already have, and then head home. His It was his Daytona route. Then he was going to head back through Salt Springs, stop by the reservation, and come end going back to Orange Springs. Uh, when he didn't come back from work, his manager, Johnny Mae Thompson, started making calls. She called the customers he was supposed to visit and discovered that he had never made it to the last delivery. Uh, now, Mrs. Thompson knew something was wrong because she's like, he's either hurt or sick or something because he would have called if the car broke down. So she decided to drive the route because she knew the way that he was going um, and see if she could find him. When that didn't work, she called Troy's wife. Troy's wife called around and they reported him missing at 2 a.m. At 4 a.m., Marion County PD found his delivery van on the shoulder of uh, SR-19. It's about 20 miles away from home. He was only a few miles from his next delivery, but Troy's body's Uh, nowhere to be found. Less less than a week later, a family out for a picnic stumbles across his body in the Ocala National Forest. It was eight miles away from the delivery van. August in Florida is a bad time to be in Florida. So even though uh, this was only a week in change from when he went missing, it was he looked real bad. Um his wife kind of Yeah. 
His wife confirmed his identity based on his wedding ring, which he was still wearing. He had, oh. he'd been killed with two shots from a twenty two cal revolver, one to the chest and another to the back. All of the money that Troy had made that day had been stolen. Now, Eileen told the police that he took her into the woods, ordered her to strip, and then waved $10 in her face and told her that's all you're worth. Um, she also claimed he sexually assaulted her, and that's why she shot him in the chest. And when he tried to run away, she shot him in the back. Mm-hmm. So, so this man was at work, right? He was driving for work. In his uniform, in his sausage truck. With the name of the business on the side. So and she wants folks to believe that he stopped for a little strange. Right? Like in a little, I, I don't believe it. I, that, that's hard to believe. I don't believe that one either. Yeah, like it, that one I don't believe. I, like I said, I think at this point now, like I think Eileen's brain shifted from, like one of the things that I've talked about when I talk about this case is that we have somebody who associates men with pain and trauma, but she also associates men with money and what she needs to survive. Hmm. That duality has to be constantly fighting itself. Hmm. Um, those two, 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 you know, trails of thought. Right. And right. so I think that honestly, I think by this point she's gone. She snapped. I don't doubt that in her head she's perceiving minor things as threats at this point. But ultimately, like she still knows that if somebody threatens you, you don't shoot them. Like, right. No, because here's the thing: when you've been sexually assaulted or traumatized in a certain way, there are multiple ways that you handle it, and a lot of the ways that people deal with it is called hypervigilance. I experience this when I leave the house. I am always on a constant watch. Who's that person across the street? Is there somebody walking behind me? What are my surroundings? Even if I have my headphones on, they're never too loud. So I can always hear if somebody cat calls or something because of things that happened when I was younger and like a teen and people like kind of riding up on me and scaring the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't doubt that she wasn't hyper vigilant. Right. I think that at this point, it's completely like the the. It's a hairpin trigger. OK, OK. If but- she perceives any of these people to be remotely threatening, bang, bang. Like If you don't do exactly what she says, which is give her money, she does the sex, she leaves, she's like, he's going to hurt me, he's dangerous. And I think that she believed that. But she still knew it was wrong. Right. Because we all know that shooting people is wrong, regardless of our mental health. Like, you know that murder is bad. Yeah. Unless you're like an infant or somebody like is three or under. Right. So even if you know that like you're super tense and you're worried about people assaulting you, you also know that like the, the, the correct response if someone is threatening you is not to kill them first. Mm-hmm. Now, I think some of this was entirely in her head, but um, we'll talk about that a little more later. Now, here's a funny thing that happens. During this same time, another guy disappears and he absolutely fits the bill. His name is Corky Reed. And when Eileen was questioned by police about him, she said, and I quote, Corky Reed, what the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) The police, of course, didn't believe her. And had they done their job when he first disappeared, they would have known where Corky actually was. 
like I said, to be fair, he fit the profile. He was 51. He had been injured in a work accident. So he was on the frail side. He lived alone, didn't have lots of family outside of his sister and her husband, Deanie and Jim Stewart. He went missing on his payday after he cashed his check on September 6, 1990. He told his sister he was going to go spend the weekend with his friend Ray at Cocoa Beach, then head to Orlando because he had a doctor's appointment and then finally stop at his mom's house on Sunday. He never showed up at his mom's house. And so mom called the daughter and was just like, what's up? Monday, (laughs) September 6, he didn't show up for work. And so the uh, sister Dini drove to his house and saw that his clothes were there and his work badge, but not his car. So they called the Titusville police and the police were like, you got to wait 72 hours for an adult missing persons case. His sister was like, no, thank you. And she printed 2000 flyers and handed them out (laughs) in Volusia and Brevard County. She also got 500 people to canvas the cities. Oh, goodness. So then the police find his car on Tuesday, September 11th in a parking lot near I-95. They didn't actually like show up to test the car or anything. Like literally the police saw it because the uh, security guard called and was like, hey, this car has been here for like a week. And so the police were like, oh, that's the missing guy's car. So they called the sister and were like, hey, your brother's car is in this parking lot. You should move it before they tow it. They did not print the car. They did not. They did nothing. Literally, Deanie drove it home. But, but the car is... Wait, no, but he's missing. Print the car. Print the car. Nope. That's why I said they did not do their job at all in regards to this case. Um, there was an open Trojan condom pack, an empty pack of Marlboros and Camel cigarettes. And well, the interesting thing for Deanie was that the car had been run down. Like somebody was riding it like they were stolen. Um, it had no like no gas in it and no oil. And oh so God. that was weird because her brother was a car guy. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, he normally takes care of his car. Why would he leave it there crapped out? His toolbox was missing. The seat had been pulled forward. And the defining marks on the car had been scratched off this time. <laughs> so no bin um, number or nothing like that. Sure seemed like Eileen's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, his sister, Dini actually never stopped searching for him. And even after being arrested and they showed his photo to both Eileen and Ty. Both women were like, we don't know who he is. And here's the thing. Eileen, Eileen's case was national news. There is no way Corky did not see that he was, a picture of him was listed as one of the victims for the most prolific female serial killer in modern time in America. He ignored it because they found him August 6, 1992 in a traffic court in Las Vegas, Nevada. What? He ran away from home. Wait, how? Wait, he's how old? 50 something? Yes. What do you mean he ran? (laughs) He ran away. He just ran away from his life in Florida. Honestly, it was a fluke they even found him. He had gotten a ticket in July for having an invalid driver's license. Mm -hmm. And when they ran his name through the National Crime Information Database, his name returned under missing and or endangered. So the police reached out and were just like, you're on a missing persons list as someone who might be in danger. And Corky was like, oh want to be don't tell my family where i am i don't like y'all he's like his family had no idea why he left he never communicated that he was okay like i said he was being listed 
publicly as one of Eileen Wuerdos' victims. So he was like, oh, good. So they'll think I'm dead now, so I don't have Probably. to. Probably. Like- Um, All police were able to pull from them is that there had been some kind of a bad business deal with his brother-in-law and he felt like he'd been done dirty. Mm. What's extra wild about this is that Corky was a roof engine, like a roofing engineer, Mm. and he worked for the Kennedy Space Center. When they found him, he was working in a casino. I have, I just have no, I can't fathom being so mad at my family. I leave a really good High paying job to hide from them. No, to go work at a. I mean, no. no now, what did casino, make this but... a little bit more um, perplexing, a mystery, was that Eileen did find his car. She found it where he abandoned it. And she did steal everything from it and ride it like it was stolen. Oh, my and God. And then she dumped it when she was done with it. Oh, okay. So she. <laughs> So, it, it, okay, so part of it, okay, she did, like, steal the car, yes, but she had no idea who the fuck it belonged nope. to. Uh, <sighs> they they know this because Ty had Quirky's suitcase and some of his clothes. Okay, Ty, look, I, I was trying to give you a benefit of the doubt. Like, if it, <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> honestly, but, the, but when, the, when you mentioned that... Two women crashed a car into like a gated thing, and then I was like, "Oh, goddamn it, Ty! No!" And, right, and it's wild that she gets away with this scot free. But we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. Oh okay. So either way, after she was doing joyriding and stealing it, she meets a new real Mark, fifty-six-year-old uh, Charles Humphrey, on September eleventh, nineteen ninety. Charles was from Crystal River. It was a town about seven miles north of Hamasasa. Along US 19. I don't know why I can't say the name of the city. <laughs> I'm a sassa. I love that name. <laughs> Florida has like some of the best fun names. Some of them are like Crystal Lake, Clearwater, Cocoa Beach. <laughs> and then some of them sound real country like Homo Sassa. <laughs> I love it. Either way, uh, Charles went to work that day at his job in Sumterville. He worked for the Florida Department of Health and Rehabilitation. Uh, he was also a former police chief. And Sumter was in the right in the middle of Eileen's kill zone. Uh, she picked a bad person for this because virtually up until this point, they didn't really care that much until she killed one of their own. Not only was Detrell works for the department of health and rehab, he was a special investigator who looked into abused and injured children. He had three kids himself and he was very good at talking to abused kids. He was also meticulously on time. So when Charles didn't return home at 5.50 p.m., she was like, maybe it's car trouble. Mm-hmm. At 6.30, she was like, maybe he stopped for a beer. Between 7 and 8 was when she panicked. And finally, she called the police and Highway Patrol did a cursory search, even though they could not file a missing persons report yet. He, his remains were found the following day, oh, uh, wow. very close to where David Spears and Charles Kaskadin's car were found. He had been shot seven times. They recovered six bullets from his remains and his wallet and money were missing. His blue Forenza was found on the 13th. Um, at an abandoned gas station in the city of Live Oak near Sweeney County. For people who don't know, uh, this is like 70 miles north 
of where his body was dumped. And it's so far north that we are like a couple of miles away from Georgia. Oh, oh wow. Like she drove <clears throat> as far as she could to get rid. Right. I don't even know if she thought she maybe she was in Georgia to keep it in a separate state. Who knows? The plates, keys, and the highway patrol bumper sticker were removed. Anything that could connect the car to Charles was gone. There was a can of Budweiser left under the passenger seat. And had the police dusted it for prints, they might have known that Eileen was his passenger. <laughs> now, the police did find a receipt for beer and wine at a Speedway truck stop in Wildwood, the same store where Peter Symes' receipt was from. This one had a timestamp of 4.19 p.m. on September 11th. The cashier didn't remember Charles because he stayed in the car, but she remembered Eileen and Ty. The cashier thought that they were prostitutes and in Florida, prostitutes are banned from truck stops. But so um, you're actually supposed to call the police if you see people work in the truck stop. But uh, the cashier was just like they were in and out. They actually were only here for food and drinks. So I didn't call them. Eileen. Hmm. Uh, slaughtered Charles and so she could not sell most of his items because they were covered in blood of course so she threw them into a field uh, in Boggy Marsh Road and those items were his pipe his pens and pencils his wedding ring his watch Eileen would later tell the police that she shot him the first few times in his body and one went through his wrist she heard him gurgling felt bad for him so she shot him in the head to put him out of his misery Ty's sign affidavit said that Eileen came back to the house, to the hotel, with a small four-door blue car in late August, September, and she wasn't there. But, you know, the cashier saw them both with Charles. Right, so she wasn't there, though. There were other inconsistencies in Ty's story. She told the police she never drank, but at different locations where Eileen and Ty stayed, lots of people testified that the both of them were belligerent drunks, and they were thrown out of plenty of motels for making too much noise, drinking, loud music. Um, in fact, one of the landlords realized um, that Eileen was hooking when she asked him to drive her to I-95 and then said she'd walk the rest of the way to her job. Mm. He was not fond of what Eileen's real job was, but she was paying her rent, so he let it go. Uh, when she got behind on rent, one time he reminded her, and she said, you are lucky you are. You still have a life. <laughs> what? <laughs> they were not too happy about that threat. No, I wouldn't be. Either. Eventually, uh, that couple saw her face in the papers, and they absolutely called the police, but that wasn't until November. <laughs> now it's late September 1998. There are, like, the counties are kind of working the cases. They're definitely focusing on Charles Humphreys. Uh, Marion and Citrus County got together and they compared notes about the Burress and Spears murder. So they connected with Detective Tan Much in Pasco County because uh, he was the one who had put out the bulletin looking for the two women driving Peter Symes' car. Mm -hmm. uh, the group were very solid. They're like, these are all identical. And so are all the victims that we found in every victim. This definitely seems like a serial killer. Um, the police pulled in as many witnesses as they could. And everybody's like, yeah, that's the one. Eileen, she's the one we saw. Police knew they were looking for a short blind woman, sometimes in the cop company of a another blonde woman who had short hair and was more stocky. Mm. 
So they make a task force with Captain Steve Binniger of Marion County as the head. Steve was pretty solid that these women weren't actually hitchhiking as they had originally thought, but that they were working the highway. Uh, that changed how they viewed the case. Hitchhiking wasn't really common in the late 80s and early 90s, like in the 70s. So they realized that the only men stopping to pick up somebody was somebody looking for a good time. Right. Now, usually they try not to involve the press, but Steve brought the press into this. And he was just like, this is this lady's picture and she killed a cop. That's all you need to know. Go find her. Well, so a truck driver named Bobby Lee, Bobby Lee Copas actually meets Eileen in the beginning of November 1990. She told him she needed to go to Orlando. And she said her kids were in Daytona Beach at daycare and she was going to meet her sister in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And then they would drive over. Makes no sense. No, not at all. Because, damn, that's a drive. These are multiple wild drives. Why are you so far away from your babies, man? Right. You're going to leave your kids in Daytona, which is like at the top of Florida. And you're going to go to Orlando. And Orlando's Orlando. like in the south. It was wild. That's, um, oh, my God. No. Okay. So... Bobby Lee ended up having to stop by his bank. He took out money for to pay the insurance on his rig, which was $4,000. She saw him put it in the sun visor. Don't show nobody what you're holding. <laughs> she didn't know how much it was, but she did see him put a money envelope up in the visor. Mm-hmm. Now, she propositions him, and she's like, listen, for $100, I'll give you the best blowjob of your life. Bobby's like, no, thank you. And so then she tries again. And he's like, no, I have a wife. I'm good. Thank you very much. (laughs) Right, yeah. And after the third time, she got pissed. (laughs) And he could tell she was angry and she was agitated. And then she opened her purse to pull out a comb and he saw the gun. Uh... So he stops at the next truck stop and he's like, listen, here's $5. Tell your sister I'm going to drive you all the way to Daytona. Mm Mm-hmm. As soon as she closed the cab, he locked the door and he said she looked mad as hell and she started screaming at him as he drove away. Uh, Coppice, I'll get you, you son of a bitch. I'll kill you like I did the other old oh, fat uh, sons of bitches. Oh, 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 oh no. See, no, no, you don't do that when someone's driving away. <laughs> she was screaming at his truck as he was and driving And you have no away. car. The police believe that the final man that she killed, she met after... Bobby Copas. So she probably Uh, met him at wherever he dropped her off at. Yep. His name was Walter Gino Antonio, and she took out her rage on him. He was 62 years old, a truck driver, security guard, and a reserve police officer from Cocoa Beach. Um, He was actually set out on uh, November 17th, that Saturday. He was heading to Alabama in hopes that he'd be able to pick up another job up there. He was recently engaged, and he was wearing a silver and gold diamond ring. Uh, The same ring that Eileen would give to Ty later, but we'll get there. Walter pretty much drove the same route as Peter Symes taking the Florida Turnpike to Walwood and more than likely stopping at that Speedway truck stop before making his final push north. They believe that's where he met Eileen, angry, ready to take it out on somebody. Um... The following day, a police officer who was out hunting found a naked man 15 miles south of Wildwood who had been shot four times, three in the torso and one in the head, all 22 caliber bullets. 
Eileen would tell the police she propositioned Walter and he pulled out his police badge and told her he'd arrest her if she didn't have sex with him for free. She said she pulled out her gun. They struggled over it. He fell on the ground um, and then began running and she shot him in the back. Then he insulted her and she shot him again. Um, he wasn't in his rig. He was in a regular car. But um, Eileen took that car back to the Fairview Motel. She asked the manager if she could park her boyfriend's car behind the motel. She said her boyfriend was married and she didn't want the wife to drive by and see it. They were like, all hmm. right. Hmm. Uh, okay, Maroon so- Pontiac. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to add one little thing, and that's to say, why or why shoot somebody if they're running away from you? They're leaving the area. Just let them run. Because it's a witness. She was okay. Not yeah, I, I get like Ronald Dominique let people just walk away. Not, not her. She was like, Mm-mm, buddy. I see. I get it, but like, if someone was, if if her story was true, and he like. Like was trying to like you know get stuff for free or like attacking her and stuff like that, and then she put out the gun and then he starts running away. Let his ass run away. You don't have to kill him or I don't I don't know. Maybe it's just but me. But he's a cop. He's <laughs> gonna tell people. Well, look, it's it's a he say she say story then, and right, and they are gonna believe the cop. Come okay, on now. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. You got me there. Yeah. Um, like I said, that maroon Pontiac stayed there for a couple days behind the Fairview, and then it disappeared. Um, it was found November 24th, a week later, in Brevard County. The plates were missing. The keys were missing, as well as all identifying information. And this time, all of the Budweiser cans had been cleaned off. They weren't dusting for them, so why'd you have to clean them off? <laughs> well, they were dusting for these ones. Oh. <laughs> so she decided to, you know, My brain keep hurts. after herself. <laughs> I know, this is well. We're not even, we're, uh, listen. One thing was interesting was that uh, because of his time as a trucker, Mark, Walter was like very used to logging all of his stops. He was very meticulous. And so they were able to see how far he had like on his on his little paper how far he had driven mm-hmm. and they discovered that in the week between his murder and them finding the car someone had driven a thousand miles that weren't recorded on his log yep mm-hmm. um walter's fiance gave the police a list of all the items he had with him most were his reserve police items all were missing um, his idea and clothing were later found in Taylor County. Eileen sold as much stuff as she could. Um, when Thanksgiving hit, Ty was just like, I need some space. I'm going back to Ohio. Now, the police are still getting all these calls about Eileen and Ty and the many places they lived. And they're building a timeline of the women's movements. Their many landlords told the police that the short blonde woman was the leader of the two and they thought she was a truck stop pro. Now, eventually, uh, Eileen convinces Ty to come back after Thanksgiving and in the airport proposes to her with Walter Gino's engagement ring. Then Ty and Eileen go back to the Fairview. She learns they're being evicted. Eileen begs her to stay. Eileen even throws her gun into the Rose Bay to prove she's done. I'm done with all this. December 3rd, a friend gives uh, 
Eileen and Ty a ride, and Eileen's like, I'm going back north. Drop me off at a Greyhound. Ty gives her back the ring. Eileen drops off most of her items from the Fairview at a storage unit, only keeping things in a tan suitcase. Um, the friend who drove them around, she had sex with them, I guess, as a way to say thank you. Um, somehow, Eileen manages to convince the manager of the Fairview, who, by the way, she has threatened now in the past to let her rent a different room. And she's like, it'll be different. I'm alone. My girlfriend's not here. There won't be any fighting or anything crazy. Um, December 7th, using the fake name Cammie Marsh, Eileen pawns Walter's engagement ring for a measly $20. Then she just kind of spends the next couple days being sad. She didn't leave the room for quite some time. And I'm sure everybody was grateful. Mm -hmm. Now, the task force gets a break from local police in Port Orange, who had figured out the movements of Eileen and Ty from roughly September to December. The two had stayed at a fair view in Harbor Oaks under the name Cammie Marsh Green, then a small apartment behind the Belgrade restaurant near the fair view, then back to the fair view. Eileen stayed there until December 10th. She'd used multiple IDs, and those IDs were con- connected to different arrests in loads of different cities. So first the police look up Ty Moore and realize that she is not a hardened criminal. She had like one thing in her past. They look up Susan Blahovec, one of her IDs, discover a trespassing arrest, and that the photo doesn't match. Then they look up Cami Green, and the photo of Eileen doesn't match the photo on Susan Blahovec's ID. The real break in the case comes, though, when they learn that Cami Green pawned a camera and a radar detector from Richard Mallory. She, at one pawn shop then a set of tools from david spears at a different one in ormond beach and back then i don't know now because i've never pawned anything in our modern age mm-hmm. but back then it was common to fingerprint people when you pawn things the items really? had already been sold but the fingerprint was invaluable right because like now they have your social security number so they can just hit your credit if you don't pay for the item that was there right, right. Uh, yeah, I've sold I've sold like one or two things at a pawn shop. I, or I guess if you're if you're like renting, you're supposed from... to come back for it, right? You know what I mean, mm, and then okay. pay them for the money they like loaned you. Mm-hmm, okay, for your item, yeah. So this was if they didn't get their money back, they had your prints. Mm. So it's absolutely invaluable to the investigation, even if it was just a thumbprint. Now, Florida had what's called the Automated Fingerprint Identification System at this time. It didn't turn any results, probably because they didn't have enough of the target markers with only one finger. So the fingerprint analyst, Jenny Ahern, decided to do this by hand. And she was like, I'm going to go to all of the cities where all of these crimes took place under these different names and compare them. She stopped at the first town and within an hour had a match (laughs) for an outstanding warrant for a woman named Lori Grody. Lori Grody's fingerprints for that uh, case matched the fingerprints in Peter Symes' car. They send all this information to the National Crime Information Center and they get responses from Michigan, Colorado, and Florida confirming that Susan Blahovic, Cammie Green, Lori Grody, and Eileen Wernos are all the same person. Mm-hmm. At this point, Ty's back in Ohio and she is worried. 
She's trying to stay low. She's not going out. She's like, oh, no, we're going to get in trouble for this. Now, Lee goes out drinking on December 19th. She ends up sharing her troubles with an ex-Marine named Dixie Mills at Wet Willie's Bar on US-1. Both were drinking to cure their heartache, and they talked about how, um, you know, Ty left Eileen and Dixie's wife left him. And Dixie would say that they talked about art and parapsychology and ancient history, and he just didn't, he'd never met someone who knew so many things. He also said that Lee was a savage party animal with an insatiable desire for sex and alcohol. They spent the next five days together, and after a week of hard partying, Dixie left her to go back home to his wife. His parting gift was 50 bucks. Oh. Okay. Later on, like a year later, he would tell the Globe newspaper a different story, saying that Eileen had tried to extort him for $500 a month, and she had fantasies and kinks that scared him. Like she told him she wanted to be raped in the woods and then shot in the head. He also said he took her to two family events and she got drunk and insulted his family. And I honestly don't believe his side of the story. It just sounds Um, loud. No. Yeah, Eileen was very candid when they brought Dixie up and she was just like, yeah, he paid me for sex. (laughs) That's it. There you go. (laughs) She's like, we had a couple laughs, but like I never met his kids or his family. And like direct quote from Eileen, she's like, what man is going to introduce a hooker like me to his daughter when he's trying to get back with his wife? It's all bull. I mean, she has a point. (laughs) Absolutely. So the task force decides to set up a surveillance on all the local bars in Daytona. It took a couple of nights, but they find Eileen on January 8th, 1991. From this point forward, they keep their eyes on her. Um, they watch her into the night and they see her at the bars uh, described in their report as mood swings from friendly and congenial to aggressive and abusive. Um, and that was just her normal day-to-day interactions with people. <laughs> they wanted to watch her for longer, but they discovered that the following night at the bar that she liked to hang out at, there was going to be a major like truck like um biker party like all these bikers from like all over florida like hundreds of bikers were gonna show up and so they're like there's no way we're gonna be able to find her through that because she could just put on a helmet and disappear right right she could also kill someone to that night Mm. so they were like oh we gotta do something so while they're thinking about this as they're learning about this it's still the eighth two port orange authority plainclothes cops show up at the bar it's called it was called the last resort and they're like hey we want to talk to you and the task force is like oh my god what are you doing they're making frantic calls to the superiors at port orange pd they're like stand down Mind you, there are six different counties on this operation. They do (laughs) not want Eileen to know that they are planning to arrest her because she could hop in a car with anyone and be gone. Right, yeah. So when one of the the cops goes back to the car to run her ID, you know, normal cop stuff, Mm -hmm. he gets a call from Bob Kelly of Volusia County that's like, do not arrest Eileen under any circumstance. It's like, what are y'all doing? You're going to frick it up. They weren't in on it. They weren't in on it because... The murders hadn't happened in her neighborhood. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, it's always but they followed order. They followed orders and they did not arrest her. They let her go back into the barn. Uh, like I said, they ended up moving forward, like taking her in because what was happening the following night. So what they did was the night of the 8th, she slept outside on this like yellow 
car, like seat from a car. She didn't even have a place to stay. Um, the undercover cops, like eventually, like they talked to her during the following day on the ninth, and um, they were like, "Oh yeah, there's gonna be that big party tonight. Cool, you know. Well, we have a hotel room at the Fairview if you want to clean up." before the biker party arrives and at first she wasn't really open to it and then she was just like okay and as soon as she stepped outside of the bar they arrested her for identity theft and fraud and unlawful possession of a firearm mm-hmm. um they didn't want to let her know that they wanted her for murder because they still wanted the murder weapon and they also wanted to get Ty. with eileen in jail they were also able to take that key from her that that storage key that had all her stuff in it and look for the things that were missing from the men. Now that same day that Eileen's arrested, the police go after Ty. They like, they actually have the Ohio, uh, the police. Well, actually she had left Ohio. She was in Scranton. So they had Scranton police just hold her. Now, once she's done at the police station and cleared of any local wrongdoing, they book a hotel room for her and they call Jerry Thompson from Citrus County and Bruce Munster from Marion County who fly up to Scranton with the items from the storage locker, specifically items from Charles Humphreys and Corky Reed. They retie her rights. They're like, you're not being charged with anything, but you're also not being given immunity. Mm-hmm. And like Ty just talked and she was like, I'll testify against Eileen. Originally, she was like, I kind of knew about Richard Mallory because of the Cadillac. And then she was like, no, well, technically, Eileen confessed to me and I told her to stop talking about it. <laughs> they take Ty back to Florida. And the police are like, listen, we, we need you to reach out to Eileen. Um, say you want to get your stuff from the storage locker. Um, say that the police are bothering you in Ohio about these murders because your picture's next to hers. You know, the the sketch now when ty first called her at the police like at the jail eileen knew that the the phones were always recorded so she's like using code words and she will not come out and say what the police needed to know this goes on for three days and finally eileen is like listen just go ahead and let them know what you need to know what they want to know or anything like i'll cover for you because you're innocent i'm not gonna let you go to jail if i have to confess i will there were 11 calls in all and to be honest they are absolutely sad um i think that ty was speaking honestly when she told eileen that she was scared she didn't want to go to jail and i think that eileen was being honest when she said over and over like i'm not gonna let you go down for this right yeah i mean okay yeah Almost immediately, Eileen speaks to a CO in um, her prison, corrections officer, and she just starts kind of offloading on the police officer. And she's just like, I'm one of the people from the news that they've been looking for. And she's like, I love my girlfriend and she has nothing to do with this. She's like, I'm the one who killed six men. And on January 16th, 1991, um, Lawrence Herzeppa and Bruce Munster showed up to talk to Eileen. She was given to public defenders. She immediately kind of waived her rights. And during that confession, during that conversation, she confessed to the murders of David Spears, Richard Mallory, Charles Karskedden, Peter Symes, Troy Barres, Walter Gino Anthony, and Charles Humphreys. Um, she wanted them to know she did it on her own. Ty had nothing to do with it. She told them that most of the time she was always drunk and she was hooking and things got rough and she got scared and she killed somebody. 
interspersed with this testimony, though, are these moments where she just rambles about how much she loves Ty and how Ty is a good, pure person. Honestly, these transcripts were hard to read through um, because I know regardless of her mental state, she was legally sane enough to stand trial. But it's not like Bundy who could tell you the places and names and who he killed and where they were hidden. <laughs> right. Or, you know, Green River Killer. Like, Eileen didn't know who any of these men were. It was just a stream of consciousness. Um, there was no thrill. She didn't get a thrill from these deaths. She did not covet their remains. She was moving from one moment to another, just making enough money to survive and then moving again. Right. Because, like, <clears throat> I think of it as, like, the men, they, they do the stalking. They, 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 they do research on these people before they even kill them. And then she just was just like, eh, in the it, moment. And I do want to pause and like, so we all know, well, not, I don't know. Some people probably listening know that there are different kinds of serial killers. Um, we have talked about comfort killers in the past. Mm-hmm. Danny Doss, Belle Gunness. But Eileen does count as a comfort killer. And the main reason is that they kill for financial comfort. Right. That's the standard. Um, now, comfort killers can be organized or disorganized. Like Nanny Doss made plants. And killed people slowly with poison over a long period of time. Eileen was very disorganized in her approach. Uh, Most women serial killers are comfort killers, but they are not usually as violent as Eileen was. This makes her very unique in the ways for people who research killers. And there are lots of elements to this case that do not fit the norm. And that's kind of why we're talking about her. Because these things confused us about the case. Uh, actually, recently I was speaking to a couple people on my live and we were discussing um, attachment disorder. Uh, if people don't know, it's something that can happen in children. Um, and it's children not forming the proper bonds with their caregivers. And then they remain like this well into adulthood. And it usually goes one of two ways. The child becomes almost aggressively social in order to gain adults' approval and trust. Or we have the extreme opposite, which is called reactive attachment disorder, um, where you have the child has a hard time controlling their emotions and stresses. Sometimes they appear emotionless and social interactions. Um, They grow up resistant to affection, struggle to maintain relationships, negative self-worth, anger problems, impulsiveness, detachment. Like, I'm obviously not a psychologist, but I've met children with this issue. And there was a major case in the 90s with a little girl named Beth Thomas who was actively trying to kill her adopted parents and her younger brother who had reactive attachment disorder. Like, virtually, she had no... She just was just like, I don't know who these people are. I don't care about them. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if I'm like, dang, I wonder if she could have had something like that. But we didn't even know what that was called back then. Right. Yeah. When she was a little kid. And like definitely part of me feels like even though Eileen waived her rights. And like I said, she's definitely not like insane. But like I feel like like looking over like those transcripts of those like four hour confession. She was just so depressed and like empty and it still feels unethical, even though they followed all of the legal guidelines. Mm -hmm. Regardless, after those interviews on January 16th, 
Eileen just kind of settled down into living at the prison. Um, she was over the news, so she was reading about herself. She was sure that she had saved Ty, so she focused on the fact that she was kind of becoming a star. Um, two days after that, though, CO said that like there was a little shift in her personality. This one CO, Susan Hansen, was on duty, and they were told to keep watch over Eileen because she was a mystery inmate. They didn't know that she was, as they were calling, they were referred to Eileen as the, um, they called her the hooker hitchhiker or like, it was something ridiculous like that mm-hmm. or highway hitch, highway hooker. That's what they called her. And, um, so they didn't know that I like lean was the highway hooker. So when Susan walks by Eileen's door, like Eileen's like, they're talking about me and they're saying that like, I'm a killer who robs and a robber who kills. And she's like, no, that's not what happened. This was all in self-defense. And she starts telling the CEO she'd been raped so many times in her life that she was just sick of it. And that if she didn't kill them, they were going to rape her. And this is something that Eileen repeats over and over again during her case. And like I said, I honestly believe that she believed this was true. Right. It was not the reality. None of these men sexually assaulted her, but she believed it. She believed it was going to, well, actually, that's not true. I think Richard Mallory was one of the ones who could have because he had a history of sexual assault um, and getting weird and violent with, like, strippers and other local workers. So I think if there was anybody who did fit that mold, it was the first guy. Right. He might have actually tried something with her, and he was also the catalyst to her snapping and starting killing people. Mm Mm-hmm. But either way, Eileen was stuck in this weird place where she, like I said, she simultaneously like didn't seem to really like men, but she needed their money. And the only job she ever had was prostitution. So, like, having to rely on these people who have hurt you. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's a... Uh, and then, like, Eileen would flip back and forth. Sometimes she would tell the, like, Hanson, you know, I used to see 10 guys a day and I didn't kill unless I had to. But then she also talked about, like, how she had had sex with a 250,000 people and the math beyond that is that she would have had to see like 50 people a day for like 10 years Mm -hmm. not possible (laughs) um and she said like hansen testified that eileen had virtually no remorse and that like she laughed and she joked about murdering them she never hansen said she never heard eileen say you know i'm sorry i had to do this or i'm upset just if i didn't kill him he would have hurt people so there is a press leak and they find out that Eileen is the highway hooker. She gets inundated with books, movie deals, but for her trial, she signed off the legal rights to her story for a film. Eileen thought that once she beat her case, she would make millions from the book deals in the movie because she was sure that like this was self-defense. Mm-hmm. She didn't know that Florida actually has a law prohibiting criminals from profiting off of their crimes. So she was not allowed to make any money from anything that we have seen from her in terms of her autobiography, um, her biography, the movie monster, nothing to be fair though. The movie came out a year after she died. So she was never going to see that money. Right. So she gets indicted January 28th, 1991 for Richard Mallory. Then as February progresses, they add in uh, three more and then they decide to push for the death penalty with Richard Mallory before they have even, finished the investigations into the other murder. That trial starts a year later, January 14th, 1992. 
The evidence against Eileen is overwhelming and damning. The medical center said that Richard Mallory would have taken 10 to 20 minutes to die, and it would have been agonizing. Ty's testimony was important because it contradicted virtually everything that Eileen said. Along with the CO Hansen, who said that Eileen didn't show any remorse, Ty said the same thing. They also pulled in 12 men who met Eileen on the highway and testified like about her demeanor. Um, Florida also has this law called the Williams Rule, which allows evidence that's not related to the crime to be submitted if it can prove there is a pattern of behavior or an escalation. So they added the other six murders to evidence to show that there was a pattern of behavior that showed that she was not killing because of self-defense. Oh, that's, um, that's, I don't, that's pretty good, I guess. (laughs) Now, the police showed the video from the confession. And like I said, when Eileen was talking about this, the only thing she was concerned about was Ty didn't do anything. Ty didn't do anything wrong. She's wonderful. She's perfect. She's special. But when she's talking about, like, killing the men, she's just kind of happily chatting. (laughs) And uh, that didn't make her a sympathetic defendant. Her attorneys were like, they're going to call you. Like, we're going to call you to talk. But when the other side cross-examines you, invoke the Fifth Amendment. Eileen didn't do that for a while. She incriminated herself on the stand about 25 different times. Oh, God. And she was angry and she was frustrated. And that also didn't look really good for her. Um, Finally, she did invoke the Fifth Amendment and they stopped but it, the damage was done. Yeah, she, she was already... also she was the only defense witness. They had nobody. Really? Damn. Nobody. <sighs> the jury went to deliberate on January 27th. They came back in 91 minutes with their verdict, guilty of premeditated first degree murder, which is wild cuz I don't think this was premeditated. I thought it was I, it seemed pretty random to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, As they filed out of the courtroom, Eileen started screaming at them. I'm innocent. I was raped. I hope you get raped, you scumbags. Um, (sighs) This is unfortunate because these were the same people who still had to sentence her. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Now, for the defense hearing, they bring in a witness to testify to her mental illness. Loads of doctors say she has borderline personality disorder. They talked about her upbringing, destroying her from a young age. Her defense attorney, like, during her statement, like, referred to Eileen as a damaged primitive child. And, like, she, like, her actual lawyer cried. And she was like, spare her life, put her in prison forever. Didn't matter. The judge remembered that explosion at the court. Uh, The jury recommended the death penalty by electric chair. The judge reaffirmed this on January 13th, 1992. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read you his statement because um, I'll just read it. It says, Eileen Carol Wernos being brought before the court by attorney William Miller, Trisha Jenkins, and Billy Nolas have been tried and found guilty of count one first degree premeditated murder and first degree felony murder of Richard Mallory, a capital felony and count two armed robbery with a firearm. Hereby judged and found guilty of said offenses, the court having given the defendant an opportunity to be heard and to offer matters in mitigation of sentence, it is the sentence of this court that you, Eileen Carol Warnos, be delivered by the sheriff of Volusia County to the proper officer of the Department of Corrections of the state of Florida and by him safely kept until warrant of the governor of the state of Florida, you, Eileen Warnos, be electrocuted until you are dead. 
and may God have mercy on your corpse. Mm. That is not normally how you end that. Yes, have mercy on your soul, right? uh Uh-huh. And so it actually caused like an audible gasp from the courtroom and people weren't sure whether he'd said the right thing. Eileen was gutted. She pleaded no contest to the murder of uh, Charles Humphreys, Troy Burris, and David Spears on March 31st, 1982. She told the court she wanted to get it right with God. She made a really bizarre statement to that court that ended with, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but the others did not. And then she turned and looked at the assistant state attorney, Rick Ridgway, and whispered to him, I hope your wife and children get raped in the ass. And that's just uh, kind of the duality in Lyleen that we've seen throughout this story. Right, yeah, yeah. I guess it's something to expect coming from her. Moments of honesty and, like, wholesomeness, followed by defensive anger and attempting to hurt people. <sighs> now, Friday, March 15th, she's given three more death sentences. Uh, she flips off the judge and calls him a motherfucker. Now, it was after the trial that the defense found the past of Richard Mallory. But by this point, she already had three other death sentences. So they were like, should we even try and appeal? By the end of 92, she had been affirmed for six new death sentences. Oh, God. Um, inside prison, it was like she'd already given up. Um, she was in Florida Department of Corrections at Broward Correctional Institute until she was moved to Florida State Prison for her execution. Her lawyers did try an appeal, even though she didn't want them to. Mm-hmm. And that appeal was denied by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1986. After Eileen tried to get her court-appointed attorneys to fall back, she eventually petitioned the Florida Supreme Court in 2001 to dismiss her legal counsel. Um, saying, I killed those men, I robbed them as cold as ice, and I'd do it again. There's no chance in keeping me alive or anything because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling through my system. I'm so sick of hearing this. She's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. I'm someone who seriously hates human life, and I'd kill again. Her lawyers are like, she is not competent to make a request like this. But the court agreed. (laughs) Um, during her time on death row, she was there with a couple other famous faces like Judy uh, Buenoano, who had been on death row since 1985 for poisoning her husband and drowning her disabled son and planting a bomb in her boyfriend's car. Mm. Uh, Judy was the first woman executed on Florida on March 30th, 1998. Um, there were other people, too, people who got their sentences commuted or reversed, but Eileen didn't want that. By the time of her execution, she was 46 years old and honestly... A very hard life had added a decade to her looks. She was still the same petite woman, but she had been stretched so far that by the time she was in prison in 91, there wasn't a lot left in her. Not a lot of fight anymore. Um, Death row cells don't have bars. There's a metal door with a hatch to dispense food and medication. She had one tiny window that looked at the parking lot. Oh, damn. Uh, Mm. Her cell was that, like, soft Baker Miller pink that Alexander Shoss told the prisons in the 60s would decrease violent, aggressive behavior. Mm -hmm. Maybe it worked. I don't know. Eileen didn't really rage in her cell. She read books about self-help and enlightenment. She wrote letters to Eileen Prowl, this horse breeder who saw her in the paper and told Eileen that she needed a mother. And so they referred to each other as my adopted mother, my adopted daughter um, even though Arlene was only 13 years older than her (laughs) she wrote to her friend Don Botkins from when they were little her only childhood friend that would be turned into a book called Dear Don 
Um, she spoke with authors, journalists. She and Christopher Barry D would work on the autobiography Monster, My True Story, while she was in prison. She made the deal for the movie. I think she really wanted people to know her story. Um, she told the Orlando Sentinel at one point, I'm not a man hater. I'm just so used to being treated like dirt that I guess it's become a way of life. But I'm a decent person. Ultimately, Eileen spent 11 years and four months in virtual isolation waiting for her execution, pretty much begging the state to hurry up. Um, there were still occasional outbursts. Like in 2002, she accused the prison of putting dirt and things in her food. She said the prison was trying to make her kill herself, that they wanted to rape her. She said there were strip searches handcuffing that was tight people kicking her door constant window checks low water pressure mildew on her mattress and that some of the co's cat called her <sighs> her last week alive she did a bunch of interviews with nick broomfield now he had done a documentary on her in 1992 called eileen wernos the selling of a serial killer and he was actually one of the few people that eileen trusted because nick believed that her case was mismantled mis mishandled and he released the second documentary uh, life and death of a serial killer like to counter what the reports like the the courts reported right, right okay um both of those films were actually used to make the movie monster in 2003 hmm. her, her her conversations though that week before she died ranged from sadness complaining about the prison feeling like she was tortured at one point she even yelled at nick you sabotaged my ass, society and the cops and the system. A rape woman got executed and was used for books and movies and shit. Um, later, Nick and Dawn would talk and that I, they realized that Eileen was really talking about the society that we live in and media using her. Mm -hmm. Now, September 20th, they wake her up, they get her dressed, move her to the execution site. The route from Broward Prison was ironically the same highway she had worked and killed on. I-95 to the Florida Turnpike, west of Wildwood, up I-75 to Gainesville, um, to the United Correctional Institution, which was formerly known as Florida State Prison. She was held in a special security cell, lit 24 hours, and watched 24 hours. It was honestly more of a cage than anything else. She declined to speak to a priest or a chaplain. Um, she, declined, she denied her last meal, asked for coffee instead on October 9th, 2002. She was supposed to be killed by electric chair, but in 2000, Florida had brought in lethal injection on the day of. She didn't fight. She walked to the execution chamber calmly, and her last words were, yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. I'll be back. Mm -hmm. And she died on 9.47 a.m. She was the second woman in Florida and the 10th in the U.S. to be executed since the United States Supreme Court restored capital punishment in 1976. Um, she was cremated as, uh, per her request, Dawn scattered her ashes at a secret location in Fostoria, Michigan. Um, Eileen had one other request, that Natalie Merchant's song Carnival was played at her memorial service. Um, that album was something that she had listened to a lot on death row when natalie heard about it she was like oh you can use that song in the ending credits for your movie nick broomfield Aww. and when nick sent her the film to watch she said it was too disturbing oh <laughs> um, and natalie well, no like she just said that like you know eileen had a really hard life and this is like terrible to watch but um she also said it was very odd to think of the places my music can go once it leaves my hand 
if it gave her some solace, I have to be grateful. Um, Okay. Ultimately, they, uh, they, they decided that she had borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. Um, she's very famously known for scoring 32 on the psychopathy checklist in which the highest score was thought to be a 30. Oh, Um, honestly i don't know if somebody like eileen would exist in today's world i worked in childcare for 10 years i met kids with a multitude of of disorders and mental illnesses and in today's day we have a lot of resources for children like kids do fall through the cracks but like gosh one of the horrible details i know about my work based on that work is that like the current rate of sexual assault in the u.s for children is 28 percent um this is the lowest it's been in decades uh, so in in the age when eileen lived it was much much higher mm. we have brought it down to that 28 percent based on teaching parents and anybody who works with children how to spot things before they become things we are very far from fixing the issue but like we're teaching kids about agency autonomy right um yeah we, we got you know what it's funny we, we got our kids this book um and it's uh it's 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 about you know how people you know how you're not supposed to be touched by anybody basically mm-hmm. and how you know my my parts are my parts and i don't mm-hmm. share those with anybody and something like that it's a it's a really good book for you know like you know teaching kids and stuff like that so they, they know that you know you're not supposed to be and if anything happens like that you do speak up and you know tell someone that you trust mhm yeah it's wild that we have to teach this, but that we we have the evidence of decades of not teaching it. Right. Yeah. Leaving our kids vulnerable to abuse. Um. Honestly, I don't know where I sit on this. If she should have gotten the death penalty, or if they should have given her a chance to get therapy and medication and see if she could live a different life. Like I don't know. Hmm. Um, All I know is that, like I said, after I looked through all those transcripts, I was just overwhelmingly sad yeah this is this is a bummer of a story pretty <laughs> i know what uh, it really was i i gotta ask what happened to um what's her face ty yeah after okay. all this did she did she not visit eileen at all like did she not have visitors at all because like um I mean, I, well, she died at 43. Oh, okay. Wait, no, wrong tie. At 43, or... Let me see, tie. <laughs> because I'm just like, well, she she kept your butt out of jail. You Like, the least you do is, like, visit her. Yeah. Um... There is a picture of the two of them, and Eileen's in, like, a... Um... Like a like a jumpsuit, like a blue jumpsuit. So I think Ty did visit her at some point in prison. Okay. And Eileen's laughing in this photo, so I think they might have made up. Okay. Um But they said <laughs> nope, never mind. To the date of Eileen's execution, Tyria Moore did not pay her a visit in jail. So this must have been before the murder that picture must have been before the murder case uh, came down. Okay. Um, yep. Um, after the trial, she became reclusive and lived a very secretive life and moved back to Pennsylvania with her family. Mm-kay. Okay. So, nope. Nope. 
you're right. She did keep her ass out of prison, but um, there's no honor among thieves. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, after that uh, rather depressing discussion of mental health and crime, maybe you have something better to talk about today, Brian. I do. I do. Actually, I was waiting for my notes to pop up. And goodness gracious, my computer's slow today. <laughs> I Listen, I understand. I'm in the... I'm I'm looking for a way for me to buy what I need, but also get an upgrade. <laughs> mm. Them's the way it goes. So, so I've been thinking a lot about how no one really talks about witches eating children as much as they should, you know? Excuse me? <laughs> witches eating children? I just want to make sure we all heard that. Yeah, that's right. Which is eating children. No one talks about it enough. Like it's 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 not one of the cautionary tales you hear anymore about. I, I didn't know no. that witches eat children. I'm pretty sure the only one I know is Baba Yaga, and I thought she wasn't a witch. I thought she was another kind of creature. Mm, okay. Well, <laughs> I thought anyway. she was just a hag, and like in D and D, hags are different than witches. Because of course, I hmm. know Dungeons and Dragons more than anything else. We're not talking D and D today. All right. Um. So all you know, all normal people care about when it comes to witches is that you know is that they'll get hexed or you know they'll raise the dead or maybe commune with some type of dark lord. Who who fuck knows? Um. You know, which are all true. You know, you know this this happens sometimes with witches. Um. I guess. But um, you know what's also true? Mm-hmm. Witches can be fickle. Okay. Um. They they may want to eat someone one second and then turn around and help someone else out. What's up with that, right? Was the lady from Hansel and Gretel, was she a witch? Yeah. Oh, I just thought she was a cannibal. Oh, my God. I didn't know she was doing a spell. I just thought she liked the, the taste of children. I mean. <laughs> well, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in a mood today. Like, this is, I'm sorry. Uh... Anyway, I I guess I could just get to what I'm talking about. No, I, I'm gonna for... I'm gonna use that clip on TikTok. I just thought she liked the taste of children. <laughs> oh my god! I mean, you're not wrong, not wrong at all. So, admit it for the approval of the Midnight Society. This is the tale of, um, you're going to guess it, so whatever, Baba Yaga. Like I said, I didn't know she was a witch. I thought that was a whole different kind of creature. No, it's not a a subspecies of witch. It is a witch. And to be fair, that's the only detail I know. As Russian? Or like in that area? No, she's Russian. well, because my one friend is Ukrainian, and he talks about the Baba Yaga, but... Well, I'd say it's a, a Slavic. Okay. Sorry, I always guess. I don't mean to guess what you're going to talk about. It's okay. I'm it's sorry. okay. It's okay. I make it so obvious what I'm talking about, <laughs> which is okay. Um, anyway, so, so where's Baba Yaga from? Uh, she's from Russia. But, like, let's get to her origin story. I'm ready. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, as as um, many of y'all have already guessed, Baba Yaga is a witch, but not just any witch. I mean, 
you know how people like would describe a witch as being like an old, ugly crone who lives out in the woods that would eat children, when in reality, they were just like some hot-ass golf girls, like just getting high in the woods and communing with nature. Whoa, 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 wait, for real? <laughs> I, know, I thought that was the modern retelling. That was the craft version of witches. I wanted that to is... be a witch when I saw the craft. That's that's the that's the witch that people normally get when they think oh, okay, of like, yeah. a, a witch. I literally in my in my uh, Stardew, not Stardew Valley, um, the game on Switch, um, with the little animals, and the, you you sell the bells, and why can't I remember it? Oh, Animal Crossing. Yes, in my Animal Crossing, I have my character dressed up like the one witch from uh, the movie. Um, the craft. Yeah, the craft. It's that it's that scene with the black hat and they get off the bus and the guy's like, you know, be careful about those weirdos out there. And she goes, we are the weirdos. And <laughs> yes. have that exact outfit on my character in Animal Crossing. Uh, I love the craft. It's one of my favorite movies. Absolutely. God. But okay, so the reality is that uh, not sexy hot girls. Not sexy. Okay, so in, in, in this reality, when you're talking about Baba Yaga... Um, the people are spot on when they talk about um, you know, witches. They, they, she is ugly. She is a crone. She lives in the woods. Um, and her story, like I said, her story comes from Russia, and it's a very, very well known uh, folklore from the area. Um, so I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to, I'm, I, I'm going to summarize it for you. Um, so it, it may sound a little familiar to most of you. Especially you, Brittany. No, I actually don't know a lot about her. <laughs> no, no, but it'll sound familiar to you. Just, just wait. You sure? So, okay. Yeah, I, I guarantee it. Okay. <laughs> so, this story, you know, starts out with, uh, you know, a dad and his wife and the two kids. Um, sadly, the mom dies, mm-hmm. um, and you know, dad, he's like real sad, so. He's, you know, after a, a few years, he's like, you know what? It's time for me to remarry. So he remarries. And uh, the stepmother that these kids get, she's very, very jealous of the the boy and the girl. Okay. The son and the daughter. Because, you know, the dad loves them. And she's like, I should be the only one being loved right now. How dare you love anybody else? So... I mean, that happens in real life, so... I know. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, One night my like, friend was, like, messaging me. He was, like, live messaging me this conversation he overheard in a bar where this girl was trying to convince a guy to give up his children for her. And he was just like, I want to go over there and talk to him. And I'm like, either he's going to make the right decision or he's not. But she crazy. Sometimes you want to like interview and like, yo, bro, do you are you listening to what she's saying? <laughs> I'm like, there is nobody in this world that would make me abandon. Like, what? No way. Wild. So, so stepmother, evil stepmother, giving me Cinderella yeah. vibes. Yep. So she's, you know, she's making them do chores and stuff, saying that they're not the chores that they're doing. She, like, she would tell them to do chores and the kids would do it perfectly. But at the end of the day, she would go back to, you know, their dad and, like, 
your children suck at doing chores. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They, they everything's a mess again. Blah blah blah. blah. And you know, the dad would some. I don't know why, but he uh, somehow believed her. Um, and he's like, "Well, okay, what do we do about the kids then?" And she's like, "I have a great idea." So, <laughs> at first, at first, um, you know, she, it's, it's funny because the story I read, it was like, you know, she calls to the kids and as soon as like she, she gets this idea in her head, the story starts calling them orphans. As Ooh! soon as she gets, as soon as she gets this idea did in her she head. Kill, she, did she, she kill daddy? No, 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 that's fine. Oh, okay. Um. But I, I guess I mean, he's the a orphans... bad dad if he let her do all that horrible crap to them. Mm. I mean, here's mm. the thing: kids a... are bad at chores on purpose. Yes. I literally but these kids were not. with my friend's kid, and you can ask this teenager to do something, and he'll do it like seventy five percent of the way <laughs> because that is how children yes. are. And, you know, yes. just let it go. Hmm. So she could have been mad, but I've been like, okay, well, that's just children. Get over it, lady. Yeah. So so um, the stepmother, she's like, all right, go to my grandmother's house um, who lives in the forest. And you'll see, you, you can tell where she lives, okay, because her hut has um, chicken feet. Okay. Okay, so we're talking about like proper witchcraft then. Yes. Oh wow. Yes. Okay. Uh, um, and you're going to live there. You're going to do everything she wants you to do, and then she'll give you sweet things to eat, and you'll be happy, and you don't have to worry about coming back home because I'll take care of your dad, and you know you you don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about you. She'll she'll take care of you. Okay, that's what's going to happen. And then the kids were like. Okay, I guess we got kicked out of the house. So, what do we do now? So the sister, the daughter, and she's like, "You know what? Let's go to our grandmother's house real quick." Smart. <laughs> and tell her. And so she, they go to the grandmother's house and they tell her what's going on. And she's like, "Oh no, <laughs> no, that's." terrible you guys have a very 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 bad future coming ahead of you because the person you're like the house you're headed to it's um it's the house of baba yaga wait 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 grandma you you're supposed to help me not let me go to Mm, the house yeah Yeah, no i was reading the story and i said the same thing i was like i can't say your house (laughs) no the grandma only got one room. She got I only got one bedroom. I'm trying to get my freak on. I I got her <laughs> time for children right now. <laughs> got trying to get my freak on. <laughs> Things I never thought I would hear come out of your mouth. Oh my god, I'm in the mood today. Okay, somehow we both are. It's it's just a good day. So she you no, know, she warns them. She's like, hey, just. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you some of these things, and um, you take it with you. Just don't don't eat it though. Uh, so she gave him like a big slice of ham and like some milk to drink. So she, they, they they did drink the milk, but you know blah blah blah. Um, and she gave him cookies too. So 
They get to the house. There's Baba Yaga. She meets them there. And it's like they, they have to call to the house because the house is op- apparently sentient as well. Ooh, cool. So, yeah, they call to the house. And I'm like, hey, house, turn around so we can get inside of you because the house is like facing I back. feel like if I it's have to tell them. the house to turn around, that's like a very clear sign. Don't go inside. <laughs> that, you're dealing, that you're dealing with a witch. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, you know, there's some really cool stuff. Like, in Magic the Gathering, there's, like, this cool card where there's, like, a house that's, like, a monster. Um, I don't play mm-hmm. the game, but I like the pictures. And, like... It's probably based off of this. Probably. And it looks very frightening. And I just feel like if you have to ask permission to enter, you, sh- you shouldn't be there in this sentient house. That can eat you. <laughs> this is very true. Um, so they they meet Baba Yaga. She you know she comes out and she like she tells them she's like, hey, I'm gonna. Uh, actually, the kids are like, hey, or you know, set mother sent us here to, like to serve you, so you got you can feed us and you know because the set mother was barely feeding them. Um, and Baba Yaga's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. Um, but hey, guess what? If you don't do these chores exactly the way they need to be done, I will eat you. What and- is up with people in chores in Russia? This is it. <laughs> I mean, it's not well, to be fair, my grandmother threatened me with stories of skinwalkers. So I mean <laughs> there you go. I guess it's just part of history. That in ancient times we just frightened children with stories of you're gonna die if you don't do this thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, terrible, thing. horrible. Oh god! So the kids are like, okay, okay, I guess this is some type of fair. Um, so you know they start doing chores, but the chores are difficult. Like, they're, I mean, they're simple tasks. Like you know, clean the tub or um, okay, or um, you know, or sweeping and stuff like that. And but they are difficult to do because this is a magical house, and of course, you know, <laughs> some she she oh, she wants to eat the kids. So the so house is this would be it's perfect. Uh, this is a really cool story, actually. So the house <laughs> is sabotaging the children to help its its master get a, a meal. Yeah, basically. Wow. So, yeah. So the witch, I guess you would call them familiars because there are animals. There, there, are rats. There are mice in the house, and there's a cat in the house. Uh, but also, her, I guess her grounds are like sentient and alive too. Like her trees mm-hmm. are alive, and, and, and the gate on her Very, by her house uh, is alive. House Madrigal. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah, there you go. Oh <laughs> yeah, God, yes. it's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> Encanto up in here. Um, so the the animals, like the the mice are like, hey, you know what? We'll help you out because this, this house is here to trip you. Is it here, it's here to trick you, okay? It's a trap house. Um, not that kind of trap house. Um, and... And, you know, the, the girl gives the mice cookies and then they give the birds that are flying around her house crumbs. And then um, they give them hints on how to you know complete this task. Uh, and then they talk to a cat, the, like the single black cat that's living there. And he's and he tells them how to, like, get get away from Baba Yaga. Um, 
and she comes home that night and she's like, Ooh, so you've done your chores. Great. Guess what? You'll have even difficult, even more difficult chores tomorrow. And if you don't get them done, guess what? That's right. I'm going to eat you. Um, <laughs> okay. So doing what the cat said, um, to get away from Baba Yaga, the kids run away that night and like, they have to they have to like get past like some trees that are trying to attack them they try to get past like this rusty gate that would have woken baba yaga up um whenever or or alerted baba yaga or some shit like that um and they like they're very kind to these things that are trying to attack them and kill them and when baba yaga comes home she's like yo why did you guys stop them and they're like because they were nice to us they actually cared about us and you you created us and guess what you've been an asshole to us this whole time and you have not taken care of us you just let us rust and you let me like not be pretty as a tree and stuff like that and you never gave the cat food like it was they're just like and she's like, fuck, okay, well, that's on me, I guess. And then, so she, <laughs> I mean, my bad. <laughs> so she goes and chases after the kids, and um, she can never find them because of something the cat told them to do. Uh, I guess it was drop a towel, and and there would be there would be a river, like a, a, a you know a a towel. Um, and a river will appear where the towel is dropped and also drop a comb behind you if you hear her coming closer to you and then a deep dark forest will sprout up out of the ground and she won't be able to pass through there so they did all the stuff she couldn't find them she got pissed off so she went home and she's like fuck this i'm going home <clears throat> so after that the kids went home back to their dad okay. Okay, I thought they were definitely going to get eaten. So better, nope. better ending, liking it so far. Yeah, uh, the kids went home back to their dad, and you know they they told him like, "Yo, dad, why'd you let her do this to us?" And he's like, "Oh, I must have been blinded by love or some shit like that." And then um, <laughs> he sent the you know stepmother away, and then you know they live happy happily ever after the end. Um. So yeah, that's the tale of Bobby. That was like that's one of the tales of her um and the children. Now, there are other tales about her, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and her description kind of changes a little bit, not a lot, Ooh. but. <clears throat> So one thing that stays constant is that her house is a a hut that is deep in the woods, and it's very sentient, and, and it does have chicken legs growing out of the bottom of it. So don't, it's don't, like don't like that part though. It's it's a it's a it's a chicken house. It's a house. N not chicken. not a fan of that part. <laughs> That's one thing. Like it's, when I saw it, I was like, "Is this a chicken? It's a chicken house." That's gross. <laughs> That's gross. Uh, uh, yeah. But um, like I said, she she is not only like a, a child eating uh cannibal witch. Um, she'll actually she'll she'll help people out as well. Um, if they do some trials for her. 
and you know to get them done the right way and she'll she'll you know grant your wishes or whatever the fuck you want from her um oh no babies don't do that Just don't, <laughs> don't make deals with any sort of entity Fay, ghosts demons which like listen especially not a gin if I just uh, no, I'm not going to my personal anyway. Don't, don't <laughs> just make don't, deals. don't don't do don't do it. Make deals. Don't do it. Don't do it. I won't. People just ac- <laughs> accidentally signing their whole lives away. Whoops. <laughs> um, th- it's a funny. So there are tales that she uh that in the forest she rides around on like a giant mortar. And she uses a pestle to grind up the bones of the people she eats. Makes sense. So she gotta she, get those she rides bones around. pounded down. I guess it's like a it's not a sentient mortar, but she somehow makes it like move. Yeah, she got um, like with her magic. Yeah, she got witch powers. Yeah, she got witch powers. Um, no wand so, though. That's a Harry Potter type crap. Yeah, no, but she does have a broom. <laughs> okay, we do have a broom, so we are following some of the witch mythos. Yeah, but she doesn't really ride around on it sometimes, but some in other stories, she does ride on does it. Does she it's, use it uh, to harass people? He, he, okay, so she, she uses a broom mm-hmm. when she's riding around in the mortar to uh, sweep away her trail so nobody knows which way she's gone. Because they're definitely not going to remember... The way this lady like flew off. No, it's no, cute though. That's cute. Not. That's kind of a, like it's adorable. Like, there's no way you're gonna remember the fact that you just saw me steal a child. So I'm gonna <laughs> sweep, 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 sweep the dust away. Whoops! It's all uh-huh. gone now. That's kind of adorable. Yeah. Um. But yeah. And and then uh she then she another story she does fly around on her broom. Okay. Um. Apparently. She she has the power to like remove her 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 hands from her body to make them like idle hands and like go run around and do her you know bidding. Oh wow! There's Which... so much stuff in this story that I am <laughs> feeling like the like they just borrowed from this and made other stuff. Everybody like sampled from it. There's yes, literally because... a movie called Idle Hands. Yes. Um, about yeah, I've been a, a, a phantom about... hand that is up to no good. Yeah, possessed by the devil. Or something. It was something crazy like that. Yeah, I it was it. a long time ago. That was definitely in the nineties. Um, yes, but yeah, I mean, and honestly, the there's, I mean, Hansel and Gretel dates back to what Grimm, the Grimm fairy tales. Mm-hmm. But I mean, mm-hmm. either everybody was just you know having a good time making mythology about kids being eaten. Or they were kind of borrowing off of each other because we've got Hansel and Gretel. We've got uh, Krampus also eats children. Baba Yaga also eats children. I bet you there's a couple more from Europe. Um, that's funny that you mentioned that. But yeah, there's 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 another. Um, so I got this one off of Wikipedia. Okay, uh, it's uh it's uh it's called a Yama Yama Uba, and it's from Japanese folklore. They also eaten children. They it's 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 just like Baba Yaga. It's a crone that lives in the mountains, mm-hmm. um, 
and she has some very cannibalistic uh, tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will she... say this. Baba Yaga's working harder, not smarter, because <laughs> the witch in the Brothers Grimm story just let them eat until they were too fat to get up. Yeah. And then ate yeah, them. And she's like, y'all got to clean my house up for me. <laughs> yeah, this lady's like, you got to clean. Or I'll let you, if you do it right, I'll let you go. And I'm like, no, don't give them options. I mean, if you're doing a <laughs> terrible thing, be solid with that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Baba Yaga, she's, um, she's a complicated person. Yeah, you know. She, um, but yeah, I, oh, the one I want to talk about, the Gama Uba, is she, she, so not only was she just like Baba Yaga with the, uh, the, you know, cannibal and the stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, apparently there's a tale that I read, there's a tale about her, I guess, Helping somebody in the village give birth, right? And it was like in a mountain hut, and there's, you know, this lady, she just stumbles upon her, is like, I got to uh, giving birth to my baby. And the, uh, the Yama Uma, um, Uba, Yama Uba, uh, she, she, you know, she was disguised as like, you know, a, a kind old lady. So when, you know, when she gave birth, when the woman gave birth to the child, she realizes, oh my god, this is a Yama Uba. Oh no, this is terrible. Oh no. And then um she she plans to to eat the, the, the baby, I guess, that was birthed from the bait from the lady in one story and then and uh, other stories she raises the baby as her own. Okay. And he he becomes like a famous warrior. Okay. Which is yeah, which is um okay. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> That's all I got for that. All right. I was reading and I was like, oh I mean Okay, so okay. not a child eater, child stealer. <laughs> both. Both. So a little bit both. Baba Yaga and a little bit sleeping beauty? There, not sleeping beauty, yeah. um the one with the long hair. Rapunzel. A little Baba oh, Yaga, a little Rapunzel. Like, you know, because she yes. stole that baby and kept her in a tower her whole life. Yes, this is very true. My God. They all overlap, um, yeah. But yeah, it's funny because I saw, like, references to this this uh, Yama Uba. And it, I guess the, um, what, do you, what do you call it? I don't know. You, you know Jinx from Pokemon? Okay. Apparently, it's based off of that. The Yamuba? Yeah. There's so many. That, uh... And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I can do a whole thing about Pokemon based off of, like, Japanese folklore. Oh, like that, that was the one that years ago people thought looked kind of blackfacey. I forgot about Jinx. Well, they, yeah, they had her. They did have her black. Oh, no, because she's purple. A, for a bit. Yeah, now she's purple. And, and yeah. Well, it's good to know that the basis was just Yamauba. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny because like all these, all these oh, like, stories. In- I understand it because I'm looking at a traditional photo of mm-hmm. the Yamauba, and she does have giant white hair, like yellow hair. 
Yep. And like big, now the outfit's all wrong for the Pokemon, but she has like big gowns and I'm, I'm looking at like a performance and someone's oh, yeah, wearing, yeah, someone's wearing a dark mask and a big wig. And like, even in like the drawings of her from like older, she is a more brown, like a browner skinned Japanese person. Yep. It's hard to say brown skin because it's not the same as like <laughs> black people, but it is a darker complexion than average that they they draw her yeah. as. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I find it interesting how all these other stories can maybe sprout from just one single story that had all these these elements in them. You know what I mean? And like, well, we don't want to take everything out of here, but evil stepmother check. Doing chores all the time, check. Cinderella. Dad's dad's gone, check. Yep, Cinderella. Um, witch living in the woods, check. That's all um, of them. She's always in the woods in the old tales. <laughs> I know. Uh, children being stranded by their parents in the woods uh, to for whatever reason, Hansel and Gretel. Right. It's it's it's. No, I think it's Hansel wild. and Gretel, they were, like, just out being gluttonous. Well, there's... No. No, no, no. There's other tales. I think if you look at the... If you read the Grimm ones... It's, it's um, very different, the Americanized version, but the, definitely the story in the Americanized version is, stop eating so much. That's basically, pretty much the, what yeah, they... Greedy children. Yeah. And they but, followed... They left a trail of breadcrumbs, right? And then they yeah. got to her house and, like heathens they just started eating her house <laughs> how dare you just eat my home yeah but and i think in the real story their parents left them in the woods because they couldn't i think they yeah i think their parents abandoned them but still yeah, they and, then, and they were hungry so they just ate the first thing they saw but then they didn't stop yeah, no, they they kept going and going, and the witch is like, "Oh, well, you want to eat? <laughs> I'll fatten you up real quick." There you go. Here, <laughs> shove this in your mouth. And they're like, "We yep. want to go home," and there is no home. There's no home. Oh my god! I forget how that story ended, and if they went back to, I'm pretty sure they it. died in the original because in all the grim fairy tales, the kid always dies. Princess in the pea, not a pea. It was a knife. She got stabbed. (laughs) Like the Grimm stories are always, if you do this thing, you will die. Here's an example of you doing the thing and dying. (laughs) Dying. (laughs) Yeah, that's like solid. The Grimm original fairy tales. Like there was no happy endings. Then we like Disney-fied them. And they got weird. And then from the Disneyfication, they changed again because people didn't like the happy endings. Right. Yeah, they made them into adult movies then. Yeah. Not adult. I mean, rated R movies. You know yeah, I mean? there was a grim horror movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's wild. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what I got today. This is fun, um, though. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was. I like talking about it. Oh. Put a smile on my face. Everybody listening, thank you so much. Uh, also, to our sponsor we had at the beginning, thanks again. Watch that show because it's wild. Um, and <laughs> remember that our T-shirts, you only have a couple days to get yourself an Asquad shirt or else it's gone forever. So what? sad. 
Yeah, if you guys are listening to us now, then you have like what three more days to get it. Only three more or days. Two more days. Yeah. Thirtieth. No, 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 two more days. Yeah, yeah, two more days to get it. Oh God, hurry up! Time's up. Get time's up. Doing? Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Yep. Bye.